Hello, hello, and welcome to the Inglorious Pastors Podcast, where we talk about spirituality, <laughs> news, and the season pr- premiere of MTV's Catfish. My name is Michael is that, Basinger. Is that show still on? It is. Uh, with what, me are what, Matt Polly. Why? Follow-up question. Brad Polly. Matt on the internet. Why? Together we are the Inglorious Pastors. Is MTV still a thing? MTV is still a thing. Um, I was sick today, Back and I in watched. My day, like, they actually played music. There, there we go. I'll be the old resident old guy. All right. <laughs> uh, I I was sick today, and I watched like four episodes of it. Yeah, of course. You hey, did you hear "Video Kill the Radio Star"? Um, yeah, that was the very first. <laughs> that was the very first video they ever played on MTV. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. It was. Um, That's why I brought it up. Yeah. So we're, we're going to start off with a couple of of segments here. Um, so it's been, it's been, we're a year into this thing or, or almost. Yeah. Well, yeah. we've done 50, this is our 53rd episode yeah. and we had one week where we did two in one week. So, and then I know we recorded the first two together. Yes. So technically, yes, this is, we've this done is the more year. than 52 episodes in a year. Yeah. So, so this is, <laughs> this is the, the, the anniversary of when we uh, started recording it. Next week is the anniversary of when we released them. Yeah, we get it. Ma- yeah. Maths are hard. Maths are hard. <laughs> so uh, we realize that the people are jumping into this thing um, and not always going back to the, and listening to everything else. Um, so we haven't really talked for about a, a year about kind of who we are. So this is introducing a new segment called "Who Do You Think You Are." <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's taking so long to have this episode yeah. or this uh, segment. Um, so we're going to do this from time to time. Uh, anybody want to give a brief synopsis of who the hell we are? Like in general or yeah. individually? Yeah, three, how would you three, explain three it? Three failed pastors from the Midwest. Yeah, multiple failures, firings. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> failed church plans. Yeah. So I, I think for some people it's like, because we do get that on Twitter, who, who even are these people? <laughs> who even are these these guys? Um, we're just three so you guys. you want to talk about individual real quick? Um, I mean, we can. I was just going for a generalized, we don't have any books, we don't have a blog. No. Um, we're not even... I always toy with the idea of writing a book, and then I'm like, eh, it's going to be too hard. Fuck it. (laughs) Sounds like too much effort. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really have anything that anybody wants to read anyway. I had an idea for a book. I'm not successful enough of a person to get published anyway. So maybe. No, no. One day. Definitely not. One day. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we're just three guys who failed at ministry and. Now we're doing a different kind of ministry. Brad Brad and I were both youth ministers. Yeah. For like. a decade. Brad, basically. Michael, and I met at my my second youth ministry. I led worship for like ten years. Yeah, um, so I got he, so he did nothing. Brad quit. Yeah. Brad quit. <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> literally did nothing. Yeah. Brad quit before I got fired. Yes, I got fired. Michael left because I got fired. Yeah. Um, we tried to start a church. Brad tried to start a church in Illinois. It failed. Mm-hmm. Came down here and went ahead and shit canned RC so while he was. You were him. listening to three highly successful yeah. people. So we have a lot of good stuff to say. So are um, we qualified? No, we're not. No, uh, not at all. Yeah. I mean, I've got a lot to say. I mean, yeah. it's not like yeah, we've we've got shit running through. Really, our brain. all of all of the failures. Uh, that's actually why I have anything to exactly. say at this point. Yeah. Yeah, so. it's our failures that make us guys. It is. Yep. And now we all work for the same company that fixes espresso machines and mm-hmm. brewers and coffee. And we started, equipment. I think a lot of people asked about our deconstruction. We started roughly 15 years ago ish. Yeah, I'd say a little bit less than that, but well, I was probably 10, 12 years. I'm 40, and I was like 23 or 22. I came out of the womb, and so. I was like, what is this shit? Yeah, I mean, I'm like <laughs> almost two decades into my so deconstruction. Michael is a little bit younger than Matt and, yeah. and I. Um, um, quite a few years. You're 30, 33. 
You're what? Well, I'm 37, so that guy's 40. Mm-hmm. So he's the old, the, the elder statesman, bastard, the, the old dirty, uh, old grumpy bigger. bastard. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, which leads me to my next segment. Um, what the hell's going on? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, as <laughs> people want to know what this podcast is about, well, uh, as an intro, uh, as the intro suggests, we talk about new spirituality and other shit. Um, <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, what we're drinking. We're going to talk about weird news stories. We've got a section called Further Up, Further In, where we go uh, deeper on a topic or do like or an interview. Foofy. Or for Foofy. The, for the lay person. Or F-U-F-I. <laughs> I, I prefer F-U-F-I over Foofy. It's because you like saying F-U. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's great. Uh-huh. And then a- after we do the, the Foofy, we do feedback section, and we talk Which about hashtags. entirely too long in the worst section of the so, entire show. Once so you'll realize throughout feel free the, to skip it. What you realize throughout <laughs> most of this podcast you is we're, the hashtags. we're incredibly mature. <laughs> And uh, we, we certainly are. We don't make dick jokes at all. Never, like that's no, never no, going to happen on this podcast. No. No. Yep. So Michael's thinking of one now. I can tell. It. <laughs> no, I. No. I'm. I mean, that's that's pretty much. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. That's who we are, and uh, who we think we are. And if you have any follow up questions, send what the hell is going on, on Twitter? So add us. Yep. So uh, here's some some music. <laughs> That's got that's got that's, a Stones uh, vibe to it, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. That is uh, Tom Doherty. Uh, you can listen to that song on Spotify. Um, it's called "It's Complicated." Um, yeah, listen to it on Spotify. Go to Facebook.com/slash Tom Doherty. T H O M, and then D A U G H E R T Y. Tom Doherty. Um, yeah, good fade out there, buddy. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I meant to fade, fade out, out a little bit more. My f- <laughs> my phone actually fell asleep, so um, that's what I get for that. I really like that. Yeah, that was that yeah, was good. very uh, bl- kind of bluesy, and mm. it's like yeah. good blues rock. And we'll play a we'll play a portion of it um, uh, at the end of the show as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so uh, so he it reminded re- me a little bit of Gary Clark Jr. Any Gary Clark, yeah, Clark bit, Jr. Yeah. fans in I the house? Yeah. yeah. Um, That's a compliment. Yes. A it's a compliment. song about alternative facts, hashtag, or not hashtag, <laughs> slash uh, post-truth uh, world that we live in. So, yeah, Tom Doherty. Thanks, yeah, man. Yeah, thank you mm-hmm. for sending that our way. It was really good. Yep. Um, so what are you guys drinking? Uh, we have from, who sent this? This is Brian Odeen. Brian Odeen sent us some stuff from Pecatonica Brewery. Or, sorry. Brewing Company. Pecatonica Beer Company. Beer Company. In Monroe, Wisconsin. Yeah, he said that um, they were brewed in Monroe, but the tap house is in a tiny town called Warren, Illinois. And they're huh. in the process of retrofitting an old storefront downtown to begin brewing in Warren. Oh, cool. Nice. Uh, I had the Nightfall Lager. So it's, uh, <laughs> I took a, a big, strong pull out of this when I got it. Not reading the labels, like oh, a lager, and so I was expecting like just a crisp lager, and it's a 
like basically kind of a Bavarian Dunkel, so it's like a dark lager. Really good, but I was not expecting it at all. Than, yeah, definitely a little thicker, but yeah. yeah, it was good. I like it. I had the uh, Outporn Ale. Um, it's very good. It's it's uh, not not too in your face, but it's, it's smooth. <laughs> There's nothing uh, offensive un- about it, un- I guess. Unlike, it's the worst uh, review ever. Unlike you. No, it's not, n- not two in your face. It's, unlike not, you. it's good. It's like a solid beer. It's not, there's, not, not, there's nothing offensive about it. Um, yeah. He actually um, played uh, some songs at their, their um, store or somewhere at the tap house or at the storefront or something. Um, played country for country fied originals and Johnny Cash covers for a few hours. And oh, they nice. paid him with... Uh, tips and a six pack and we are drinking that six pack (laughs) thanks brian thanks for sharing i had the uh i had the pecatonica ipa um did not like it um (laughs) unfortunately i really i apologize to brian for that it was it was not good really in the name of authenticity super weird aroma yeah it's super weird taste just overly floral aroma i would say like IPAs generally are hoppy. Like I didn't get any hoppy at all. Like it was just a, re- it was just a, int- it was just weird. I did not like it at all. So I apologize, Brian. Thank you for sending it. Um, Hashtag mad is the worst. Yep. Well, no, I mean I'm not going to lie and say yeah, it was great when I didn't. It just, it just wasn't that. Great. You weren't so, a fan. Yeah, I wasn't a fan. This round was on Adam Pulley. Uh, Adam has a wife of two years and a baby. Number one is on the way. Nice. Uh, he lives in Jefferson City, Missouri. Also um, nice. Currently works as a video specialist with the state of Missouri and is the head of the tech and creative team at Memorial Baptist Church. Huh. Sorry about that, buddy. Um, <laughs> I had a. I had a. I think I had a. Yeah, I had a pen pal girlfriend. For a while in middle school, early early high school from Jefferson City, Missouri. Yeah, she's funny. Catfishing you, bro. I don't remember her name. I met her at a Christ. Probably some (laughs) old dude named Larry. No, I met her at a Christ in Youth Conference, and then we. It's her. her I'm sure she. I'm sure she wasn't into me because that's pretty much how my dating life went in high school and college. Same. So, I was really into her, and so we wrote some letters and back to each other. Remember who that was? was, I don't even remember her name, but. Yeah, I was like a freshman. She left a really good impression on you. She did. Well, I was, I was a freaking freshman in high school, and we spent four magical days together. Yeah, in before wherever. Instagram. Yeah, and, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, he has two dogs and loves riding motorcycles, uh, playing golf, and playing music with his friends. Nice. Um, his bi- biggest project at the moment, this is Adam Pulley, by the way, um, is following in the footsteps of the turds before him and launching a new podcast and a website <laughs> called uh, Dive Bar Disciples. Mm. So uh, they're breaking down terms, phrases, and practices used by Christians all the time. And just drinking rot gut whiskey shots. <laughs> <laughs> having, having open discussions about uh, whether those things are good, bad, or just don't really matter. All the while sampling uh, the best craft beer, um, great uh, liquors from across the globe. And uh, you can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. That's the Dive Bar Disciples. I listened to their first episode today. Mm-hmm. Uh, really enjoyable. Good. Uh, it's very similar to our show. Um, they have a, a female on the cast, though. So oh, nice. It's a, it's a nice nice touch. Um, we, do, we do, too. I, say, you, I, I, wasn't, I, was, I, wasn't, say. I want you to know, I had that joke in my head at the same time. Well, did not say it. Here's the joke that I didn't tell. Did not say it. I was going to say, it would, be, it, it would be like this podcast, but instead of Matt, we just replaced him with Brad's wife. It's a much better dynamic. Hmm. Look at that. 
I tried to be nice and uh, um, see where it gets you. I got flame. See, for this it. is where this is why <laughs> you just don't, just don't do that. No, uh, but it, it was it was really. I get ridiculed for being nice. I get ridiculed for being an asshole. <laughs> Can't really win either way, can I? No. Uh, so thanks, thanks, <laughs> good to know. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, uh, Adam. Yes, thank you. We we really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to buy around. Uh, buy us around go to patreon.com slash pastors podcast it'll get you in the pub it's a closed facebook group where we um hang out and talk about things things discussed in the pub this week um when you're probably going to get fired from a church and the the aftermath of dealing with getting fired from a church yeah love to talk about that we had a couple of pub live performances Uh, matt played a song in there i did um, Brian O'Dean, who who supplied yep. these beers, um, played a song in there. Uh, there's a pub ladies' night coming up. It's ladies' night. <laughs> oh, what a, oh, what a night. Oh, what a night. This is ladies' night. Shaka Khan! Uh, Ian Irving, we talked about his, his vast knowledge of where to purchase nose hair scissors. Um, and then we also talked about why you should say Venti at Starbucks. Because if you don't, you just kind of because if you don't, no, Michael's going to die actually, on that hill. Uh, so. You will, like God. No, but you're, here's you're the, the thing: you're, you're the you're the worst, and here's why you're the worst. <laughs> no, because it's a dumb, stupid thing, and, and whoever posted that was completely correct. It's dumb. Well, here's the thing: it's dumb. It, it, I will agree with you; it is dumb. But don't take that out on the fucking people behind the counter. I don't think the person was advocating to take it out. Well, if you're gonna. <laughs> Here's the thing. It's called a sense of humor. Look Here's the thing. It. Go to the fucking God, order, I love when he takes things like this. Order something seriously. off the fucking menu. <laughs> order it in the correct way so we don't have to say. I oh, think people know what a large is. I don't think it's that difficult if you I, say large. I know, but here's the thing. The people that are working in Starbucks don't give a fuck <laughs> about... Venti or not venti. Just say what He's just so say what you want to order. Just say He's it. He's so fired up. Just say it. Just say venti. Get it over with. Because if you say, oh, I want that tall one, there's actually a fucking tall size. And Which you may, happens to be the smallest because that makes loads of sense. Because you'd be surprised at how many people say, oh, I want the tall one whenever they want the fucking venti size. No, you, I, you, get to, you can take the man out of the company. You can't yeah, take the company out of the man, though. No, company no, man. It's, it's if any fucking place. You don't go to fucking McDonald's and say, Wind hey, him up and let I him want go. a Whopper. You don't say, I want a Whopper at McDonald's. That you is don't. completely different. It's not that it different. It is. It's Absolutely completely not different. That, different. that is at Michael J- or MJ Basinger. <laughs> okay, on come at me, bro. Let's move on. Come Let's fucking move at on. me, please. Yeah, people add him on this. He's being ridiculous. Yeah, I don't even care. Like <laughs> any any former Starbucks employee will agree with me that uh, just fucking only, say no. It. Only the company shills. No, anybody, anybody. <laughs> that uh, what I'm saying is they don't like it either. They don't like that you have to call no, it a venti. I know. But the truth is, you ha- they have to call it a venti, so you should fucking have to too. <laughs> Don't be a dick. Because here's the thing, Never dude. Mind. I'm not even gonna let it go. It's I could go on for like five minutes. Let it go. Let it go. No, never gonna get. You don't work go. at Starbucks anymore. I don't care. I have I have go. friends that work there. I'm gonna speak on their behalf. Um, just say fucking venti. <laughs> just fucking say it. God damn it. You guys gotta be worked up. His face is already Damn so it. pissed. Yeah. Oh, right. I love it. All right, here we go. <laughs> Lock up your fears, dry all your tears, refill your fears. We're headed into the new speed. so bad. I love it. God damn it. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. 
uh, into the news feed. I'm not even in the right frame of mind now. I like how we were talking about. We, we should probably stop saying the f word so much. And he just said it's it like nine, nine times, times in about a minute and a half. Yeah, just say it. Just say venti. Come on. Until we get a swear jar, I'm, I'm going to keep saying oh it. Oh, my god! We need a swear jar. You are the um, worst. So as part of our GoFundMe, Zach Crater is, has brought us a wonderful story. Zach Crater is at Zach Crater on the Twitter. He's at Bros Bible, Bible beer. and Beer. Bibles and Beer. Yeah. Bibles and Beer or Bible and Beer? Mm. Bibles. They have multiple Bibles. On yeah. Twitter, is it Bros Bibles and Beer? We talk about this yes. every time. Good Lord. Is it Bibles? Yes. Bros Bibles Beer. Yeah. Bros Bibles Beer on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Um, he uh, brought us a wonderful, lovely story. Um, so Walmart is being sued for selling fake craft beer. Oh, I saw that. I read this. Yeah. Um, not only does Walmart seem to hide the fact that, that um, they have fake beer, they're actually a store brand. So Walmart has their own store brand um, fake craft beer. And also, it says it's for trouble brewing, and trouble brewing doesn't even exist. Right. So if you're cruising the the beer aisle at Walmart, you can pick up a, a pack of trouble. Um, it's brightly colored, um, but it's not real. So they're getting their asses sued for it. Um, I hate to tell you, all the big brew companies, beer companies, do this too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I watch. I think it was called Beer Wars. Great documentary. On, it used to be on Netflix. I don't know if it still is. There's some there's some shady shit in the yeah, beer industry. There is. Like, so like they would create. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Like at Kroger, Diesel brand, Bre- Diesel Brewery, <laughs> Diesel Punk, Diesel Punk. Oh, yeah. that's Kroger. Yeah. No, it's not Kroger, but it's owned by one of the big. It's one of the big beer companies. It's a fake freaking yeah. brewery. Oh man, like it doesn't exist. Like Shock Top's owned by uh, Miller. Miller, like, yeah. it, but so like what they'll do is a lot of times they'll even have an address for a brewery like so it's like an actual brewery but it's yeah. owned by like budweiser but the brewery doesn't exist yeah that's like, tr- trouble, the, trouble yeah, doesn't even exist you go to the physical address yeah. that they put on there's nothing there like yeah. so yeah. yeah so you uh, unfortunately legally they're not allowed to call it craft beer because it's, it doesn't qualify underneath yeah. the uh the the regulations of, of what craft beer is um so what's what's funny on on one of the articles he sent me about it um, there's some reviews about the specific uh, beers, and it's pretty, pretty freaking terrible. I'm trying to find it. I don't know where what I did with it. Shoot, <laughs> this is this is exciting uh, information. It's I'm fascinating, sure. uh, riveting. Radio. Damn it, I can't find it now. Um, but basically, saying it tastes like Heineken, it tastes like garbage. Yeah. Um, it it tastes like college. Well, the name of the the name of the company I think it was producing was was the the Genesee, you remember that stuff? Yeah, oh, yep. yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, it's, it's the same it's, company. It's that, that same creamy company. crap. That is, the literally the worst it beer is I've ever the had. Worst beer, and I, I'm I'm including hams in that. Yeah. it's yeah. the worst beer I've it's ever had. I've never had Genesee. But I I've literally had kale. one drink. It's and terrible. Pour, and spit it out. I don't even think I swallowed it. Yeah, and then poured the rest down the drain. It was the worst. That was terrible. What I said the word swallowed. Michael's got that shit eating grin on his face. <laughs> I love it when my jokes tell themselves. <laughs> Can we move on, please? Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, thanks, Zach. Um, so don't buy crappy uh, trouble trouble uh, brewing company beer. It's shit. Yes, indeed. And Walmart's terrible. Yes. For a number of reasons. Can I do mine now? Uh, oh, I was going to do mine, but sure. Oh, wait, okay. does Michael have another four? No, no. no, no okay. I'm going to do mine. That was Zach's. Oh, okay. Go ahead. But no, no, no. You guys do yours. I'm fine. 
Two women tried to sneak 13 pounds of horse genitals into the U.S. <laughs> yes, that was the, one of mine. I heard this on the radio. The little uh, byline underneath it. You can't get cocky if you're smuggling Mongolian horse parts. Ah. Ah. Rim shot. Uh, you see, co- it's funny because... <laughs> no, the, the joke is, see, it's funny because they said cock. In, that's two weeks you, in a row. Do you see? That's Michael, do you see why that's funny? Why is it funny? It's funny because <laughs> it, they snow, smuggled in genitals and they said the word cock. Cocky. <laughs> I love it when people smuggle. Because because Michael, because cock is, is Stop. a... Stop. Hey, can I tell you something? <laughs> Jeez. You know what I do every day? I smuggle horse genitals. <laughs> 13 pounds of them. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> I, I, I never thought I'd be shocked again on this show, but I kind of am, actually. I mean, we've all kind of made those jokes before, but he really just went for that, didn't yeah, he? That's really it's good. It's my job, bitches. <laughs> no, it's not. All right, no, go ahead with your, no, you don't. your horse meat. I don't even oh, want to anymore. Oh, my gosh. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officials at Washington Dulles International Airport uh, stopped 13 pounds of horse genitals. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they pulled the Martinsville man aside. <laughs> Florida man. <laughs> He was described as a red beard. He described with, as a homely, frumpy man. With <laughs> <laughs> Look at that equine uh, sex organ. <laughs> well, that's actually what it says. Are you looking at the article? Yeah, I, I literally had this one for Did one you, of mine, yeah. The equine sex organ smuggling was attempted by two women traveling from Mongolia as customs officials had them go through the routine agricultural inspection. But the horse genitals were only part of the package. All told, the women attempted to smuggle 42 pounds of horse meat and <laughs> three liters of yak milk. Yeah, do people not realize that like, other countries eat horse? Like, And it yeah. isn't weird? Um, well, it's weird to try and get it over back, bring it well, home. And if they're Mongolian, Ho- though, Horse I mean, meat is prohibited from entering the U.S. unless yeah. accompanied by an official government certification. Otherwise, it, this is the nastiest sounding phrase, otherwise it's considered unknown ruminant meat. <laughs> yeah, you definitely can't have Mongolian meat. You can't have the horse meat from Mongolia. And the idea is the idea is to prevent foot and mouth disease. And right, 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 right. Weird stuff. So anyway, uh, yeah. w- here's a question: Would you eat horse? I'd eat the shit out of some. Horse. I probably would. I've eaten cheap balls. So. I'd try it. Yeah, I'd eat a horse. I'd try it. And it was, it's it was, supposed to be really. It's got to be. I mean, how they eat it in Italy, they eat it in France. They it's got to it. be leaner than like cow beef. It is. Like they beef. eat it all over the world. in Other countries. People all over the world. Yeah, I'd eat it. Yeah. Hands. I probably would. Yeah, I'd try it after you after you've eaten sheep testicles. You kind of there's a little. Those aren't bad either, actually. If, if you, you can get out of your what you're what you're eating, eating, they actually yeah. had a really good taste. I just wanted to know. I, I couldn't tasty, get it out of my tasty, head. Tasty, tasty balls. I couldn't get it out of my head what I was eating. So yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, horse meat. There's a picture. Um, it's 42, 42 pounds. pounds. That's a lot. 42 it pounds is. is a lot of That's horse a meat. Lot of, yeah. There's no way they butt smuggled that. No. It no, they had d- to be like strapped Stop down their now. legs. Stop. Stop now. Stop. 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 Mine. Stop. Stop. <laughs> My God. Jeez. <laughs> All right. So moving on to the on to mine. Um, this is really funny because I, 
I just started following Gordon Ramsay on Twitter. Oh man, I watch a like not I, a lot. I, but I, I'm I am an unabashed Gordon Ramsay slut. I think he's hilarious. Yeah. I watch a uh, hotel. No, nope, the hotel one. No, no he no he's got a hotel one. No, uh, yes, that's not him on the Travel Channel. I don't watch the Travel Channel. Oh, okay. It's on Fox. Uh, hotel Hell or something like that. Oh, he goes in and fixes that. up like bed and breakfasts. Breakfast dies. Bre- <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I just started following you just yesterday, and then I saw this story popped up today. You're an idiot. This story popped up today. <laughs> Ten plus times amateur chefs showed Gordon Ramsay their food and instantly regretted their decision. <laughs> this is lit. I swear yeah. to God, I started following him yesterday. I happened to see somebody retweet him, and I it was the, it made me almost spit out my drink. I was laughing so hard. So basically, people just keep sending him pictures of shit they make, and they're like. Tell me what you think of this. He oh, just gosh. roasts them like, like he does on the show. I yeah. Mean, um, the plating's all wrong. Yeah. Well, he didn't even go. He's just basically like it looks like freaking garbage, essentially. Is Yeah. So somebody put, what do you think about my chicken pot pie made from scratch? And he put, you bought it. Your box is in the background. <laughs> and it literally <laughs> is. Like, it's you can see the banquet box. Um. He said, somebody put, what do you think of this steak? <laughs> he put new battery for your smoke alarm. Because <laughs> it's like burnt to yeah. crap. That's how Michael likes them. I don't like them burnt. You like them well done, though. Which I'll is, take it well it's done. ridiculous. Don't, God. <laughs> it's it, Just leave it here. Oh, just like, oh, people, oh, come on. So somebody put. Now I'm pissed off. Well, like, I'm like, pissed off at people that ruin meat by going well done. What, what if I told you that I only did it whenever I'm with you guys? <laughs> no. Here's what you. Here's what you need to know about Michael. Is whatever like is normal. Consider normal. By yes. He will do the exact yeah, opposite absolutely. of that. Yes. Yeah. It's normal to eat your meat medium, medium well ish. Michael will do it well done just because. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. had some some. Uh, some, Can you burn all the flavor out of that first? Thanks. No, man. You you burn you burn it and then you slather butter on top of it. Give it some A one no, sauce. No, you don't. Fuck yeah, if bro. If you cook a steak right, you don't need A one sauce. I'm kidding. I don't use A one. Anyway, so another one. Somebody put this that says the portion is small, but what do you think? He said, John, your rice looks older than me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just he just roasts people. That's like, yeah. Sorry. Second time I've Second interrupted time every damn week now. It's it's my browser can't shut the fuck up. <laughs> this one somebody put pretty sure this is the best poached egg in a noodle soup you'll see all day, and he put looks like toxic scum on a stagnant pool. <laughs> <laughs> like I just I love him. Yeah. I, I know I know he's like a terrible person or whatever, but man, is like, he a terrible person? I don't think he. I is. really know I much about him. I think it's all a persona. He's like, like he's like the Simon Cowell yeah, of like cooking. I think it's all a persona. I think he's yeah. probably actually a really nice guy behind the scenes. But yeah, he's. I, I love the show Hell's Kitchen. You guys ever watch Hell's Kitchen? I don't watch that. I watch the other one, the Master Chef. No, is he oh yeah, that? I like that yeah. one too. Yeah, but oh my god, he's just he's he's ruthless. So anyway. That's a uh, don't. If you want to save your self esteem, do not shit send a picture to Jeff Ramsey. Of your <laughs> or do do add him add us too whenever you do it. Yeah. We want to see. Yeah, we want to see what happens. Um. So a couple of things: the woolly mammoth could be de extinct in two years. See, I, I think this is bullshit. Um. They plan to make a woolly mammoth elephant hybrid. Harvard University told yeah. the Guardian this week. 
I'll believe it when I see it. Um, they're when two I see years it's hairy balls swinging around. <laughs> <laughs> two years from uh, from resurrecting some of the traits of the woolly mammoth. So they went extinct during the last ice age. It was an elephant with a toupee, basically. <laughs> It's basically, it's, it's basically it's the, Donald Trump, Trump of elephants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, Trump painted gray. That's what that is. Um, so yeah. So that's. Um, are, are there any um, any animals that you wish they'd bring back? Mm, not really. No. No. no I think really. they're extinct for a reason. What reason? That I don't know. Natural selection. They. I shit. I don't know. Right. Saber toothed tiger would be kind of fun to see in a zoo. Oh, I wouldn't want to beat one out like you know in the mm. wild. No. Okay. Um, a bird caught on video. Dragons? Just, How about dragons? Dra- I don't think those <laughs> ever existed. Leviathan from the Bible. I want him. <laughs> oh God. Um, a bird caught on video just straight up eating an alligator. So um, it's a it's a baby alligator. Oh, so I'll say man, that. But that a, a blue count. heron. Um, was caught actually eating an alligator. Yep, um, sure enough. It is pretty small, though, yeah. in fairness. Yeah, that, that happens. Uh, I almost hit a heron with my car not long ago Where? on the interstate. I was heading to Evansville, and it was at the side of the road in a like a little creek. <laughs> what are you playing the video? Yeah, he was eating an alligator. <clears throat> and it took off right as I was going by it. And I mean, it veered at the last are second. Those... Dang it. It's oh, my Brad's God, talking. Michael. Sorry, go ahead. It, yeah, I almost hit it with my. It are almost flew right into my native car. Native to Indiana? Yeah. Or is it oh no, there's blue herons everywhere. Are there? Yeah, oh, I don't think I've ever seen one. Really? Not here. Well, they're everywhere. Well, okay, I haven't seen any. I've seen them over by Walmart, like <laughs> literally two minutes from your house. Maybe I don't know what I'm looking at. Yeah, I guess not. <clears throat> um, right, did you guys hear that they're getting rid of the um, thimble in the Monopoly game? Why? Because um, they're bored and nobody's buying Monopoly anymore. Yeah, so they're trying to yeah, to to juice it up. It's going to be uh, thimbleless. So they're they're trying to refresh their tokens, and they've got an online voting campaign, um, and they're going to get rid of the thimble. Hmm. Um, they're going to announce the tokens on Mar- March nineteenth. <laughs> uh, drag. <laughs> the what? How many people That's have that. written? The, how many people have written dong in there for like a replacement? Yeah. yeah. Well. You know, besides you, they should put a flashlight <laughs> as, as the next piece. Some of, some of the options are the smiley face emoji, a cell phone, aviator sunglasses, a robotic sex doll, a uh, robotic sex doll. Um, and then um, on the chip chip uh, news. Lay's is doing their do us a flavor. Oh again. yeah, I love these. Um, so the crowdsourcing has yet again backfired yeah. right on cue. <laughs> um, so some of the flavors that they have uh, suggested um, are Dorito, <laughs> um, <laughs> Mountain Dew, <laughs> Peeps, um, Pink Starburst, Red Lobster Cheddar Biscuits, <laughs> Alligator, Alligator. <laughs> um, I made it myself. Salt flavor. <laughs> you know the <laughs> from under cheese. Oh, sausage party. <laughs> Drunken nachos. <laughs> Vanilla shake and French fries. Bubble gum. Kale salad. There was uh, raw meat. <laughs> that one's for the Polly Brothers because they like raw meat. No, gonna, do oh, not. Raw I like meat. properly cooked steak. That's what I like. Unicorn barf. <laughs> Um, 
just love. Winter company. Winter company is going to realize <laughs> like stop putting shit stop on the internet. Stop putting stuff on social <laughs> yes. media. They have if one that tastes like the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> just tastes like angst. Yep, teen spirit. That's what it tastes like. Um, farmers market, uh, the South. <laughs> this one tastes like mystery. It tastes like. Freaking nut sweat and racism. And my favorite one, <laughs> the last one, it tastes like regret. <laughs> so that's, uh, you can, you can, uh, the best do me a flavor one they had was the uh, cheesy garlic bread. Did you ever have mm-hmm. those? Holy crap, they were ridiculously no. good. Um, speaking of peeps, Oreo has a peep. I hate Oreo peeps. now. Peep I love peeps. Oreo. Oh, peep Oreo with peep. I just I don't like Oreo peeps. with peep in the middle. Peep fla- oh, I would try that. I I'm like sure the peeps. I'd probably try that. I just mm. I don't the, like peeps. The man. vanilla peeps are actually <clears throat> much better. It's a it's ones. a I don't I think it's a they're just a texture thing. They're just weird. They're not, yeah, I, there's just, just nothing. The yellow going. the the vanilla ones are pretty good. They, Every they year I always buy flavor. a package of them and then I blow them up in the microwave and yeah, the kids always think it's awesome. Yeah. All right, I got one last one. Oh my god, dude! It's like a nine hour pod. God. All right. Kentucky man arrested. I get made fun of every week for I having know. two, and he has like him. nine yeah. every week. Kentucky man arrested after shooting down an eighteen hundred dollar drone that was hovering over his sunbathing daughter. Oh well, well, I'm not sure I'm disagreeing with that decision. Yeah. So it was it was just hovering over his backyard. His his daughter came in, came into the house and said, "Hey, there's a drone out there." He goes and shoots it out of the sky. And it was literally in in above his property, so he shot the gun straight up, which is not a great idea, guy, because <laughs> um, that's going to come straight down. Um, well, not unless you hit the drone. No. Yeah, so <laughs> Mythbusters. So he hit it. That. He hit it straight up, um, and uh, now he's getting sued by the guy who owned the drone. No, nope. Saying that uh, here's the thing: that guy with the drone is going to end up winning that. Like probably, you just know it. It's crazy. Yeah, so, I, I am not a gun guy or a mm-hmm. violence guy, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm kind of on board with the guy shooting the drone down. Yeah. Yeah, my big question would be, why is your drone over my property? Well, I think you know why. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. the problem. It, you know? his, his weapon uh, is is legal. It's, it's open carry. He was in on his property. Um, and they actually took him to jail. for Really? For endangerment, first degree, and criminal mischief because he shot fired his shotgun in the air. Huh. Yeah, he's going to lose that lawsuit. Yeah, he is, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm kind of on board oh, with that man. guy. Yeah. If it's over your property, you should be able to shoot at it. Well, yeah. you got to be careful with that because then it's like, can't. yeah, well, a mailman stepped on my property, so I shot it. Yeah. 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 But, you, I mean, I can't say, I mean, if it's I don't creeping even care on your about teenage the legality, daughter. Yeah, but if, <laughs> if that thing's creeping around to my teenage daughter, take I'm me not to jail. Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Sheesh. All right. Well, with that. Um, Boy, that was an awful we don't have voice. any. We don't have any uh, fat bastards, right? Nope. No. Nope. All right. So, well, I did have a revelation about Trump today. All right. Let's go. Let's go in your revelation. <laughs> uh, I was. I, I realized. Book of, book of I, I realized that Trump is basically Joe Bluth. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So. Has done nothing on his own. No. Rich family. Yeah. Inherited a shitload of money. Gob. Yeah. <laughs> uh, completely the only success he's ever had is just because he's got the money to back him. Yep. From his family. Yep. An mm. overinflated sense of his own self-worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Total womanizer. Yeah. 
I, I I can't. I like I was sitting there. I was listening about. I don't think there's a there's a non parallel. No, he is literally he really Joe is. Bluth. Yeah. yeah, he really is. Do you think Joe Bluth is Donald Trump? I mean, you think it was because of Donald Trump? No, based off of. I just think that just a weird coincidence. You had a uh, no because the rest of the development start was like two thousand one. Yeah. Donald Trump was around before. But well, not right, like this. But, yeah, but no. not in the spotlight like that. But yeah, I, I he was in the spotlight for a I know, fucking but not as not fucking like president, this. Michael. He's Shit. been he's been this big of an asshole. All oh my long. god, he has to argue with everything. No, but seriously, he has been in the spotlight I for a it. fucking long. I think time. you're missing the point, but not like this. Well, the yeah, point. I mean, he's president of the United States. So, anyway, I think he's Joe Bluth. Like, I there's I think the parallels are there. He's also a uh, uh, Bobby Newport. Like at Parks and Rec, yeah, yeah, like a total narcissist, completely. I, I agree. Clueless, with Bobby unintelligent, like yeah. just sailing by he's on his family's coattails. Overtly, he's Bobby Newport. If you really look at it, he's Joe Bluth. Yeah, like yeah. the parallels are there. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like complete narcissist. Yeah. yeah. People right. who haven't watched the rest of development are checking out right now. Yeah, they, they are, have no idea what we're talking about. Get so on board. Let us know if you've watched the rest of development. Let us know if you agree with that or not. That. President Trump is Joe Bluth. Yeah. Job's not on board. Job's not on board, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Hillary McBride. Uh, we're going to go into FUFI. Yes. Yep. Hillary McBride, McBride is a PhD student in counseling psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC. Um, she holds a Master's of Arts in Counseling Psychology. She has a full-time private practice in counseling psychology in Vancouver. Um, she does research and clinical work in the areas of the body, um, specifically women's experience of their bodies, including sex, sexuality, body image, eating disorders, pregnancy, menopause. And she has a um, a clinic speciality in trauma, both single incident traumas and complex development tra- developmental traumas. Um, she's got a book coming out October uh, of 2017, titled uh, As We Are, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, um, about her research in that area and how women can uh, love their bodies as they are. So really excited to have um, Hillary McBride back on. Um, we want to say a huge thanks to um, to Brian O'Dean and uh, Sarah Swanson, Ron's daughter, um, <laughs> for helping us out with questions. Yeah. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Um, Really appreciate the insight that they brought to the table, and we are we are very excited to have Hillary back on. Hey, everybody! Before we get into this episode, uh, we want to just uh, issue a trigger warning. Uh, there are some sensitive topics that we discuss uh, with Hillary during this episode. Uh, including uh, incest, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, uh, verbal abuse, military trauma, uh, rape, et cetera, things like that. So uh, if that's something that uh, is uh, difficult for you, um, you might want to avoid this episode. Thanks. Hillary, hey. Hey, <laughs> oh, hi. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. We're super pumped oh, to have you. My my pledge. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> As Paul Rudd would say, my yes. pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> um, so you are by far the most requested return guest. Like oh, people, shucks. people really wanted to hear you again, and so and we've had Rob Bell on the podcast. Yeah, oh, so. no, nobody's saying get Rob Bell back yeah, on. I don't know like, why, but that Hillary gal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if for those of you listening at home who haven't listened to the first time Hillary was on, she was on episode uh, four six forty six, uh, and we talk about sex and spirituality. 
four six. Sorry, four, we're just laughing. I, at you. I, I almost said or? zero four six, but I forgot numbers. I forgot how they work. <laughs> so um, we do have some follow up questions uh, about. Yeah. So the first episode was about sex and spirituality. Um, we have some follow up questions about that. We'll get into into that towards the end. But today uh, we're wanting to talk to you about trauma and spirituality. Mm-hmm. All right. So can you lay out for our audience what definition of trauma we're going to be talking about and maybe touch on the neurobiology of trauma. Oh, yes. I can't wait. Get ready for me to nerd out. <laughs> Feel free. Here. You just talk. So wait, yes. I think the, the interesting thing about trauma is that unlike a lot of other things that we talk about in psychology, it is there's a, a very, very, very strong neurobiological component to it, which means that we've got these experiences that we go through that for whatever reason are outside of the norm and not outside of the norm as in like not um, normally occurring within the lifespan, but outside of the norm in that we seem to have difficulty coping with them. And when these events happen or a series of events or um, inactions on the part of people who are supposed to be caring for us, Uh, then it seems that our brain body system kind of freaks out in a way that's designed to keep us safe. And um, there can be profound consequences to that for us, depending on when Mm. they happen in development. Yeah. Jump in if you have any questions at any point. Um, There are two kinds of trauma that we talk about generally. Like there's um, people who work in the field will talk about small T traumas and big T traumas. Um, Those are just a way of differentiating between the felt experience and the impact socially. So, so could you give like yeah. an example of like a yes. small T and a, and a large T? Yeah. So small T could be, um, you know, so-and-so is left outside of his school every day for a year waiting for his dad who forgets to pick him up because he's at the bar and he's there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and feels alone and isolated and distressed. Yeah. Um, or like, let's just say, Young kids, um, two or three, their doll is their attachment figure because their doll was given to them by their mom who died and it's the only thing they have left with their mom and then the doll falls apart and or gets thrown out the window and run over by the garbage truck or something. So that versus big T trauma like earthquake, multiple violent rapes, um, a tsunami, uh, stuff that when you look on the news – that you would see versus things that are kind of experienced as traumatic by people, but may not actually be newsworthy necessarily. Gotcha. So the, so the big T's are sort of like life altering, like it alters everything. It changes ah. literally kind of more seismic events. Well, what's interesting since you say that is actually <laughs> the, the seismic magnitude, if you will, has more to do with when the person is, how old they are and where they're at in their development than the event. So if you've had a fantastic life and you've had people who loved you and helped you process difficult emotions and you, you know, you get run over by a truck, that is going to be actually doing completely different things to your brain than if you are young and uh, your dad rapes you every night for 10 years. Hmm. So the way that we see a person's brain change especially when a trauma happens or multiple traumas happen in development and especially when they're by somebody who cares for you or is supposed to care for you, that the effect, that the effect neurobiologically is 
extraordinarily profound and actually permanently alters a person's neuroanatomy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm just I'm trying yeah. I'm trying to get trying my brain to around all of that. I'm trying to sort of Yeah, so if you think about that. Like we've got a, we've got a plastic brain. A plastic brain is just our way of saying that our brain changes. And the, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of the term myelinization, but it's a fancy word for us to say like these certain specific neural pathways or connections or parts of the brain are insulated. It means they're pretty much done cooking. And when something happens and those parts of our brains are unmyelinated and something abnormal, overwhelming, distressing, um, chaotic happens, including seemingly small events where there's been an, omo- an omission, and I'll talk about that after. Uh, it can permanently alter the way that that particular brain structure develops over time, huh. and from that point on. So, what's interesting is brainwave patterns in people who have ADHD actually match brainwave patterns in people who have early developmental or chronic PTSD. Really? So we're huh. seeing. Yeah. So there's actually some some thought out there. Yeah, as you chuckle to yourself, you're like, it makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, there's um, a ton of literature out there. And I can throw up res- references and books and stuff for people who are interested in reading more about this. But the parts of your brain that deal with attention and filtering um, stimuli, that things that deal with the ability to reg parts of your brain that deal with memory retrieval, regulating emotions, impulses, um, even simple things like getting annoyed by stuff that other people don't even notice or being unable to hold focus are all symptoms of having developmental trauma, but also appear like ADHD. So remember that diagnoses are just constructs. Um, they're just things that people sat around a table and were like, oh, these things look like they're related. We're just going to put a name on them. And that there's a lot of overlapping um, symptoms and causes within and between diagnoses. So, yeah, it's really, really, really cool when you start looking at it because I think it's – and one of the reasons why I'm really into trauma and doing trauma work is it's so destigmatizing when you learn about the neurobiology of things. Like it seems like we as a culture have a really hard time understanding why people can't get over things. But as soon as you say, well, neuroanatomically, there was a structural variation early on that's hardwired into their brain now, people are like, oh. Right. Yeah, it doesn't just seem like, oh, it's just something you can't get over. It's Yeah, or like, it's not a moral failure. It's not like you're just not trying enough. Like, it's not, it's, there's a difference between like. It's become physiological. Yeah. Shit, we are seven minutes into this and I'm like, (laughs) what? I feel like I need a break. Like, I'm like, just to process all of that. Holy crap. Let's talk about unicorns for a second. (laughs) I'm just kidding. What's coming up? What are you guys, what are the questions that are happening? Well, I I will say this, you know, I have a son with ADHD, so that, what you just said was insanely interesting to me. Um, Mm. And especially with talking about, you know, when we discovered, like, you know, for a long time we were like, what's wrong with him? Like, he's just kind of a, (laughs) it's going to sound, he's kind of an a-hole. Like, why is he, why is he acting like this still? He's, he was past the age where, he should have been kind of beyond oh, what he was yeah. doing developmentally. Yeah. And yeah. when we finally got answers to it, I was like, Oh, he can't help this. Like, right. This yeah. is, this is something wired, like his wiring, like this is yes. his wiring. Yeah. yeah. It made it, it, I mean, in one sense it makes it easier to deal with in another sense. It's still frustrating, but at least, you know, there's a reason for it. He's not just 
trying to irritate you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes it a lot easier. It was an enemy that you could fight as opposed to, right. I have no idea what's going on here. And what's interesting about that statement, it's an enemy you can fight. It's funny how when we've got a diagnosis or like some sort of neurological correlate where we can like point to something on a brain scan or we can identify something neurocognitive, it's like he can then participate in the fight with you yes. against the thing. Yeah. Instead of you being against him and he is the thing. Yeah. Yes. That makes sense? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, I, I can relate to that 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, mm-hmm. once we figured out what was going on with him with ADHD and sensory processing disorder and all that, yeah. like it, it totally changed the dynamic of our relationship with him because, yeah, yeah he, we weren't fighting him. And, and before right. we were just fighting yeah. him. And fighting yeah. all the things he was doing, and now it's we're actually fighting something together, and yeah. with medication, with therapy, and all this kind of stuff. So awesome! Yeah, that makes That's it cool a, to hear about. a lot easier. To, again, it's still frustrating as crap, and um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you you have ways of dealing with it now, so it makes it right. a lot easier. At least you know what to be frustrated at, and it's not yes, him. it's not him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And on my bad on my bad days, I still get frustrated at him because course, I'm yeah. human. But um, yeah. but yeah, it makes it a lot easier to deal with for sure. Wow, I'm so glad that you've had um, that insight and the information to know what's going on. Well, I have my wife to thank for that. She uh, Googled screaming five <laughs> and came up with all kinds of fun things. So we uh, we started getting help, so which was which was a pretty key. So, you know, I won't go into this. This is like a bit tangential, but you know that those stats about men live longer when they're married. Yeah. Like women have higher help-seeking behaviors and health-seeking uh-huh. behaviors. And so when men get married to women, generally the woman is like, go to the doctor or like, what's wrong with this? You've got to get that checked out. And so like women are socialized to either be a little bit more anxious or to be more um, open to accessing care. And so it can be, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. That is my wife to a T, actually. Yeah, that's, that's very awesome. true. God bless her for that. <laughs> my yeah. uh, so I just recently found out I have sleep apnea, but my wife's been asking oh. me to go to a doctor for like six years. <laughs> and literally, I probably would so not. So it's have, really a good thing that you're not yeah, dead at this yeah, so point. It's a really good thing <laughs> I'm not dead. But if she had not consistently told me I needed to go do this, then I probably would have never done that. Wow. And literally found wow. out that I stopped breathing over twenty times over the course wow. of an hour. Oh, I'm sleeping. so sorry. Yeah, it's all right. How did we get from neurobiology to Michael's horrible <laughs> uh, yeah. sleep Well, patterns? it's saying that wives are good for men <laughs> or for people, just in general. Okay, so I want to go back to something that I referenced. Yes. Um, I said omissions. And what I mean by that, there's two kinds of trauma that we see happen for people. There's a commission that would be something that is done to someone. So I punch you in the face. That's a commission. Sure. I did something. An omission would be things that fall in the category of neglect or an absence absence. So if you've got kids and kids are dependent on their parents for learning how to emotionally regulate, doesn't mean that they're weak or they're going to become needy permanently for the rest of their life. They literally have a dependency on adults to learn how to process and manage emotions. And here's another sidebar. All of our social emotional processing is experience dependent in its development, which means we actually have to have someone walk us through it for those parts of our brain to actually grow and develop. Mm-hmm. You cannot learn social emotional processing and experiences from a book. Those are mm-hmm. completely different components of neurological functioning. So you always, so, it, it, every, every behavior is a learned behavior. 
essentially. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, the old like nature or nurture debate is completely debunked because we now understand that nurture shapes our nature and nature shapes our nurture and they are completely interdependent and interactive at all moments of the day and throughout the lifespan. Hmm. So you've got these omissions. So Hitler's parents must have been real assholes. He was into some funky stuff. Or, or Trump's, really, really, for that matter. So, <laughs> Yeah, there's interesting um, in both of those guys to look at their bio- biographies and to, to see the family structure that they were raised in. And yeah, that's a whole other podcast. So <laughs> when we've got this, this idea of like these parts of our brain are dependent on experiences for their to, for them to be fully functioning or to function in the way that they end up functioning later if you are totally overwhelmed and distressed and life something cha- totally chaotic has just happened and there isn't somebody there to actually help you walk yourself down from that your nervous system becomes permanently aroused and the omissions of not having somebody to walk you through that is um can be traumatic for developing brains, developing kind of huh. senses of self as well. So the the percentage of trauma that is neglect and is, or kind of omissions and commissions, I mean, it's hard to say because a lot of people have both. They've got a parent who's not around and then, you know, dad comes in and is alcoholic and beats you and that's the only interaction with you. But a uh, large percentage of people with trauma and complex trauma have experienced one or the other or both. So it's not just, you know, I think we think of trauma like like the example I used earlier, someone got ran over by a car, but the the structural changes that happen in the brain when anything happens early on, especially if it's subtle and especially if it's somebody um, on, it's received from somebody who is supposed to be taking care of you, this creates profound, profound neurological changes. And I can, if you want me to nerd out, I can yeah, yeah, drop. Sure. Yeah. So we've got a few different areas of the brain that that affects, um, including most notably limbic system. So parts of the brain that are responsible for threat detection, um, anxiety regulation, memory storage, sensory encoding and processing, all of that stuff can get all wacky. Um, We can also see parts of the brain like frontal lobe stuff gets a little bit off and weird. It's hard for people to regulate and hold attention. Um, Yeah, there's lots of stuff in the nervous system, even sensory stuff that can get wacky. Uh, Parts of our brain that are responsible for kind of ignoring or filtering. It's a kind of a broad word to use and it's not really academically correct but we've got parts of our brain that filter out stuff that we don't really need to sit with but when we've been exposed to trauma especially trauma that was early or um continuous the parts of our brain that filter out unnecessary stuff or that stuff that everybody else can live with it's like those filters go off and so people's brains can be highly sensitized to really really seemingly benign stimulus you know a child crying um a noise at the grocery store a temperature stuff like that so would that be kind of what's happening with let's say a a soldier Uh, a veteran with ptsd you know with fireworks and right that kind of thing because they were exposed to such prolonged those noises for such a prolonged time and the fear that comes with that 
Yeah. So PTSD is an interesting thing. And I think when we're talking about trauma, it's important to distinguish between like what is a diagnosis and what is uh, experienced and felt as traumatic and what creates neurobiological changes. Because again, PTSD is a construct um, that we essentially the way that diagnoses work in North America is that you need a diagnosis in order to test treatments. So it doesn't mean that people who have subclinical thresholds of symptoms, that would mean like they meet some diagnostic criteria for PTSD, but not all. It doesn't mean that they're not suffering or that they aren't traumatized. It just means that they don't fit within a certain bubble that is narrowly defined by people who want to test drugs and other therapies. So that's, again, like it's a it's an important thing to understand that diagnoses um, – that there's a lot of people who suffer who don't meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD because they're missing one of the symptoms or something like that. Okay. But we've got, um, essentially what happens in trauma is your body gets overwhelmed. I'm going to give you the like magic school bus version here. Um, (laughs) Is that a show that you guys have in the States? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Okay. Get baked into a pie. I think it's now on Netflix. (laughs) Ah, yes, good. So what happens is something happens outside of you or to you and the parts of your brain that detect threat all of a sudden are like oh my gosh I'm freaking out this is not cool I'm in danger flood your body with a bunch of neurotransmitters um, chemicals hormones to get you all amped up and worked up so that would be the thing that we call fight or flight you guys know oh, about yeah. fight or flight right. yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah. We got fight or flight. And we, we took amateur psychology in college, so, <laughs> uh, yeah. so we're, you could say we're experts. Okay, that's right. No, I don't. Know. They're not. <laughs> we're so experts. We're experts in literally nothing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Except dick jokes, right? Well, uh, yeah. we, are we are pretty damn yeah. good at those. We have our PhD in that. So yeah, <laughs> I think that's a throwback yeah. from last episode we had her on. Yeah. I believe. I think so. Yeah. I know. That's I'm doing a come around there. Yeah. So. Our body gets flooded with all of this stuff that makes us react in a way that is totally appropriate when we're in a situation that's dangerous and unsafe. And so that is a really, really good adaptive thing that happens. The problem is that because when we're experiencing something, the way that our brain functions, it kind of, um, we could call it disintegrates or it disassociates things that are normally parts of our brain that are normally talking, limbic system, frontal lobe left and right hemispheres, all that kind of stuff, it stops, they stop talking to each other. And so things kind of get fragmented in their experience. And Mm -hmm. traumatic memory and all of the stuff that's going on around us and in us during the trauma, including things like the smell, uh, the color of the light, uh, the texture of our clothing on our skin, the way that our our eyes are positioned, where we're looking, and the muscle memory of where we're looking, Um, the auditory memory, so all of the sounds, any of that stuff all gets stored together with the emotional content and the physiological stress response. And it gets packaged and stored in a part of our brain that's different than regular memory. So Mm. if I got, if I said to you, like, think of what you ate this morning, unless it was highly traumatic, it's probably not going to create too much affect when you remember it, too much emotion. But if I got you to think about one of the most intense moments of your life, there would probably be a lot of emotion that comes back. And you might even be able to remember, oh, I remember the smell 
And I remember what that person was wearing. And I remember where I was in the house and the light shining through the window and what time of day it was and what time of year it was that all of those things get coded together. Hmm. Unfortunately, what doesn't get coded very well when we're experiencing memory or stored very well is time sequencing. So looking at how um, or storing things in chronological order as they happen. So memory chronologically is pretty fragmented during a really acute trauma, which is why, this is a little political plug here, why we can't necessarily discount the uh, testimonies of sexual assault or rape victims because their testimony keeps varying because of how we recall memories mm. when they've been traumatic is different than how we call recall regular memories. Huh. And so it can create this fragmentation that makes it very, very difficult for us to place what happened and when. And you might have this overwhelming body sensation, but have no memory of what happened for six hours. Or you might remember everything that happened, but it's all jumbled up. So we've got all of this crazy stuff that happens everything gets disintegrated, some stuff gets packaged together, and it gets stored in a part of our brain that is really connected to the survival parts of us. So what happens is anytime we experience after trauma, anytime we experience a stimuli that's in that package, pretty much all of it comes back. So if you experience like you said, the if you're a vet and you're hearing the fireworks, that stimulus of the sound of the fireworks pulls back all of the stuff related to what that sound was kind of like, and you get a full body reaction to the trauma as if it's happening again. Because huh. it's not traumatic memory, especially when it's really intense, your brain stores it in such a way that it doesn't believe that it's over. So people re-experience the trauma as if it's still happening to them, which is why flashbacks happen, which is oh. why people freak out at the grocery store, is because parts of their brain body do not know that the trauma is over. And while they might cognitively understand it, ha it happened in Afghanistan, it happened at my dad's house when I was four and I'm here now, cognitive parts of your brain that are responsible for conscious thought actually completely disengage from the parts of your brain that are re-experiencing either at during the time of the trauma or during the time of the re-experiencing the trauma. Wow. So you could have somebody who linguistically has no access to language while they're re-experiencing, while they're in the trauma. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Super, super fascinating stuff. Yeah. Once again, this is a free podcast. Sheesh. I feel like everybody's getting like a PhD level uh, <laughs> education. Can right we just now. start charging for Hillary's podcast? Yeah. Like, to start no charging kidding. her episodes? <laughs> Um, so there's really interesting stuff about like why when somebody is, is talking about the trauma and they can, they can know intellectually that it's over, but then they keep getting these flashbacks because stuff in the environment, it's like it's poking, it's poking the bruise. Like the person oh, who made yeah, the bruise yeah. happen, the, that action or the punch on the leg or whatever that made that bruise happen, the punch is over. But the bruise is still there and there's sensitivity around it. And if you touch it, it's going to react differently than other stuff would because it's your brain body system has categorized these experiences, sensory, auditory, visual, all of that stuff with the trauma. And they're stored together in, in, a, in a fashion in which your brain reacts when something in that package is triggered, like it's still happening. The trauma is still happening and it's happening to you right then in that moment. So the, the traumatic memories, I think you said the traumatic memories basically get stored in their own separate part of the brain. 
separate from every other memory. Did it's, I hear that correctly? It's yes, that's like a, a colloquial way of saying it because okay. memory isn't stored like files in a cabinet. Right. It's more complex than that. But right. for the purposes of like our understanding of it here, yeah, that's okay. how it is. And okay. then what you see is when people have trauma, different parts of their brain light up when their when their trauma is triggered, if they're getting an fMRI scan or something like that, versus regular memory. And when people have done trauma processing, when they're asked to activate the traumatic memory, parts of their brain light up that are different than what light, lit up initially, including parts of their brain that light up when they're thinking of regular memory. So it's almost like if we're using that image or the, the idea of it being stored in a place, it's almost like after trauma processing therapies, like the memories moved to a category that says like this is over and it's done. So you can actually, because it is plastic, it takes work, but you can actually change how you react. If someone has PTSD, they're not necessarily going to have to be like that forever. Um, but profound changes, anatomical um, changes happen in corpus callosum, so the band of tissue that connects your left and right hemisphere, mm -hmm. prefrontal cortex, which you guys, you drop that bomb all the time. Mm -hmm. Amygdala, hippocampus, which is responsible for memory, function, space stuff, behavior inhibition as well. There's your ADHD kind of symptoms. Um, yeah, and a ton of other stuff too in terms of like how your body responds to cortisol, serotonin, epinephrine, um, all of these neurotransmitters that make us feel good or make us on guard or um, make us feel like we're okay and we can manage yeah, it's pretty, pretty scary stuff. And then I guess one other thing that I wanted to say, too, is that, you know, that fight or flight response that we were talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a, a hierarchy in how we understand traumatic response. And so fight or flight is actually the second level response. And this is what we this is Porges polyvagal work. So if anybody's interested, um, Stephen Porges, he's come out with a bunch of a biologically based theories about how people respond in trauma and stress and there's a bunch of books and stuff but there's three tiers of response so the first level of response is social engagement and that's um let me back up there's a nerve that runs from the base of your brainstem one branch runs up into your face and one branch runs down through all of your organs your lungs um digestive stuff i think into your bladder and maybe right into the base of your leg so I'll have to check on that. Someone's going to look it up and they're going to find out that I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> but you've got this one branch that runs up into your face and one branch that runs down into your body. And when you're experiencing threat and your amygdala and a bunch of other parts of your limbic system are like, hey, this person is like not coming at me with a knife and I can probably talk them out of it. Or I've, I've learned that I can talk myself out of difficult situations and threats. We'll, we'll cry out and say, hey, stop that. Or... Don't, I don't do that. I don't like that. Leave me alone. So we'll use a branch of that vagus nerve that runs up into our face. We'll get activated in such a way that our social response is encouraged. So larynx, eyes, face, that nerve branch is saying connect socially. What happens if that branch doesn't work is we actually move to tier two response, which is, again, the vagus nerve, um, I think... Second level response, ventral vagal or dorsal vagal? 
You can look that up later. It's not important. <laughs> you can say math. either. We'll be, yeah, yeah, really, you could have just made it up. Like, yeah, cool. Yeah. I think it's actually ventral vagal break off now that I'm thinking about it. So we've got this branch that runs into our body and it gets us activated. And that's the part of our, our body that says, you know what, if you, if you are not safe, get out of here or protect yourself. And there are, um, there's research about how our brain makes that split second decision about if we're going to fight or if we're going to flight based on what's worked before and how close the threat is to us. If our brain is saying you can get away or you can't get away. So there's actually uh, research to indicate why a person might fight or flight. If fight or flight doesn't work, and this is like, it doesn't work now or it doesn't work historically, like you know, I couldn't fight my abuser off because it was my uncle who's 200 pounds heavier than me. The other branch of our, the vagus nerve, the one that runs into our body, a different, we'll just call it like a frequency or tone or signal is sent through that nerve in such a way that it causes our body to go into collapse, freeze, or feign death. So there is a response that happens when we're so overwhelmed and can't fight back and that would actually make it worse for us that causes our body to completely shut down. There's a few different kinds of shutdown that happen. Um, It can be, you know, we are unable, physically unable to move. So like one of those horrible dreams where you want to scream but no sound is coming out. Oh gosh, yeah. You can't even move your body. Um, And there's rigidity but your eyes are activated so your eyes can track everything. Uh, which has implications for why we use certain eye movement therapies in processing trauma. But then there's another kind of response that can happen in this feign death or shutdown, which you become totally limp and almost unconscious. So it's like a person passes out almost. And usually when that happens, you're getting a massive like opioid release, endogenous opioid release in your brain, which creates a bunch of neurological changes that completely fragment how you store memory. So some people can completely cognitively go offline. Um, This is what we call like a, you know, dissociative amnesia. So their brain actually does not store memory at all or doesn't consciously. Um, So people are either kind of aware that they're trapped and they can't move or they're, it's their if they're off. Um, yeah. So that has really <laughs> interesting implications for like how we treat trauma, um, and how people remember trauma and stuff like that. But people will say, you know, I hear, um, someone will say, I have, I remember hearing my dad's footsteps walking up the stairs. I knew he was drunk. I knew what happens when he was drunk and I don't remember anything for about 20 minutes. And then I remember waking up in my bed and my jammies are off. Jeez. So there's the way that your brain is designed. I think actually designed. This is not, um, this is, I think, whatever we want to call it, God, universe, whatever person feels comfortable with. But this is God's way of saying, like, I am going to keep you safe from knowing what's happening because that was so bad that it's just not even, it's not even going to go in. So there's a massive evolutionary function to us not coding not remembering certain experiences. But again, think of how this would have consequences on people for people who are trying to recall yeah. trauma in court. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. People who might continually find themselves in situations that are like the trauma 
and freak out but not remember why. Why am I freaking out? I'm at the grocery store. And then we do some work and it turns out the person behind you in the grocery store lineup had the same smell of alcohol in their breath as your dad did when he was assaulting you, but you don't remember. So your body remembers, but not cognitively do you remember. Holy shit. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff. That's crazy. And we're only on question one. So, uh, <laughs> man. Um, one, one question, and this is kind of just like a, a base level question, is yeah. it, trauma specifically, is that something you can put – is there is is it a label that you can put on any kind of suffering or, or is mm-hmm. it just exclusive to only specific events or specific types yeah. of events? I think that there's different kinds of def- – um, Hmm, that's a good question. Different people would answer this question differently. Um, since I'm being interviewed, I'll answer it the way that I would. <laughs> but I think it's um, it's a word that we use clinically, academically, and colloquially to mean different things. So think of an example of the word depression um, and what it means to be depressed. I could say, I woke up yesterday and I felt really depressed. Or, oh man, that's going to be so depressing. And it means it's going to be hard for yeah. you. But that is actually different than what we mean by a major depressive episode or major depressive disorder, MDD, all the specific diagnostic criteria. But those are both things. They're both real. They both kind of mean the same thing. And so we could say, I could say, wow, like I went through a really traumatic event, which if I was saying that might mean it was extraordinarily disruptive, chaotic and overwhelming for me. And it it was, it left me feeling confused, overwhelmed, powerless. And like I had to do some integration work to kind of make sense of it. And it stuck with me for a little while, but that might be different than, um, you know, somebody who's grown up in a chronically neglectful and abusive home where they actually meet diagnostic criteria for complex PTSD or a conduct disorder or something like that. And then you've got someone who goes through trauma that we would all say, wow, how did you survive that? That is a miracle that you are alive and that the person that, yeah, that you're alive basically, but they might not meet diagnostic criteria for a a clinical definition of having a traumatic, a a disorder related to trauma. So it means lots of different things. We can use it to say like it was really overwhelming, confusing. I felt powerless. It was traumatic in my life but I don't necessarily have PTSD from it. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So what's the, um, is there a connection between as far as I guess recovering from trauma, is there any sort of a connection between, um, how you recover and how I guess, quote unquote, spiritual of a person you might be. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. is there any data to support that, you know, spiritually inclined people recover better or worse, or is there, I don't, I'm, I'm not exactly yeah. sure how to formulate that, but. So there are some, some ideas that we have in the literature about people who have what we would call resilience, but means for some reason they're able to get through it in a, um, in a healthier way than we would have expected. And there's some research to say that people in religious environments, I don't know about spiritual, but religious environments can actually have more trauma um, or are impaired in their ability to get through trauma. If you think about church culture too, like just, just pray about it. It'll go away. Um, Or like, we're not going to listen to you or, you know, this is, it's a, you don't have enough faith, stuff like that. 
The way that um, in my clinical training around this, a model that I was presented with was looking at pre peri and post-traumatic factors. So pre-traumatic factors would be like, what was your life like leading up to this? Do you have lots of people who love you and support you? Have you felt known and loved and cared for? Do you have a sense of belongingness? Do you have a belief in um, a meaning system of the world, if you want to call that religion or faith or a relationship with a creator or a higher power, something that gives you a sense of like, I can... I can make sense of hard things that happen, or at least I know I'm not going to be alone in hard things that happen. That all of those things going into the trauma, plus what the trauma was like itself. Was it perpetrated by somebody who you knew? Was it a random person? Um, Was it an environmental event? Did it happen when you were developing? Did it happen when you were later in life? Um, How long did it last for? How many times did it happen? Uh, was it a split second by accident? Was it, you know, someone intentionally seeking out maliciously to traumatize you? All of those things fit into the peri-trauma category. And then you've got the post-trauma category. So were you listened to? You? Did you get care right away? Um, did people support you and come to your aid? Did they believe you? Uh, did they give up on you when it didn't go how they wanted because they prayed for you or they came... They came to your aid and they couldn't fix it. Uh, So all of those things work together. Pre, peri, and post-traumatic factors work together to help us understand why do some people get better? How deeply does it affect them? um, What are And I think spirituality could be a positive and a negative in all of those categories because I know that there are people who, in ritualistic occultic abuse and spiritual abuse that can also be integrated with sexual abuse, people are saying to... Um, this is, this is pretty, pretty sick stuff, but saying to kids while they're sexually abusing them, like God wanted me to do this. Right. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm a priest. And so what is spiritual, um, to that person might, I would say, and, and, and their experience of spirituality pre, peri and post would influence resilience and healing and, um, all that kind of stuff. So unfortunately, that's not very nice of an answer to give you. <laughs> um, it's kind of messy. It really, I, th- I would say it really depends. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we know that people who have support and people who, um, yeah, people who have support and I think will will do better than people who don't. And people who had really good development growing up will do better than people who didn't. Um, and I think that those are a component of spirituality. As opposed to just like, I, how many times do I pray a day? Right, right. A sense of belongingness and knowing you have a community who cares for you and loves you. And um, you have in common a sense of meaning in life. So can you talk a little bit about um, the role of what role family systems play in mm-hmm. how people deal with trauma? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. Um I think there's some controversy about when, when we say certain kind of neurological conditions are have a strong heritability to them, it's hard for us to say how much of a, a disorder that a person has, like let's say alcoholism, how much of it is purely genetic in that it was going to, you know, it's within them and regardless of what their parents did, some sort of stuff would emerge and how much of those disorders and symptoms and dysfunctions 
are a result of their parents also struggling with the same thing and then raising them in such a way that didn't enable the kids to break the cycle because the parents couldn't give the kids something they didn't have. Mm. So what I mean by that is to say, if you've got a parent who has their own trauma, let's just say um, in certain generations it would be dads who came home from the war and then raised families and never talked about their trauma and never dealt with it, then the kid does something um, or goes through a trauma. If the dad hasn't worked through his trauma, likely he's going to get triggered in such a way that either makes the kid's trauma worse or makes it hard for him to show up for the kid. So there is some ideas that we have about intergenerational trauma, which look at how trauma is passed from family member to family member over time because of how it literally shapes our brain. And like I was saying with um, experience dependent development for all of our social emotional processing, if you're not getting experiences that you need or you're getting experiences that are in some way harmful, that will shape your brain. So that's like the, the biopsychosocial component of family systems. But then we've also got, like, is your family caring of you after the trauma happened? Are they not? Did they disown you? Did they, was there some rape victim, victim blaming stuff? Like the, the parents get mad at the, the girl for getting violently raped because they said, well, you shouldn't have been drinking out at night. And if right. you would have listened to our family rules about not drinking in this house under age, then that would have never happened. Yeah. So there's, um, there can be some post-traumatic factors as well to how does a family respond. Um, we know that this is not necessarily related to trauma, although there is a link between trauma under the age of four and um, acute psychiatric symptoms later in life and having more kind of psychosis symptoms. But what we see is that people who come home from the hospital after they've had a diagnosis of schizophrenia or psychosis and they're staying in the hospital and then they come home, if the family was warm or is warm or cold to them, will predict their relapse or their healing. Hmm. So if the family provides a certain emotional climate, we know that it's going to change that person's ability to recover and reintegrate into society. Is that is that answering your question? Yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, okay. we're, we can't respond because we're trying to process everything <laughs> yeah. you're saying. It's so good. We're just trying to figure out how to – I can't even think of questions to yeah. ask as follow-ups <laughs> just because it's so much good stuff. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me um, is when two people who go through the same event, and for one person it's extremely mm. traumatic, and the other person it's not nearly as traumatic. Um, can you yeah. talk through a little bit um, of that and kind of how those two people yeah. interact with, an, uh, with each other in their – their shared experience. What do you mean interact with each other in their shared experience? Like um, how they so, talk so about I'm it after? So I'm thinking of, um, so um, the, what, what I'm thinking of is two yeah. children who are, are byproducts of maybe divorce, maybe a, a particularly messy divorce. Um, one was, was much younger than the other one and kind mm -hmm. of um, the older one was, is affected a little bit more intensely than the younger one because she yeah. has a lot more than memories of before. Uh, yes. Um, yes. And kind of how growing up, um, their relationship feeding off of each other in the, the result of that kind of that aftermath. Yeah. Okay. So from the top, why do people experience traumas differently and what, how does, how do they interact about it after the fact? Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So or, or just, just that relationship between two people yeah. who have the same experience, but yeah. are affected differently. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that there is, I'll just speak to that first. I think, and this is what I see so much in my clinical work, that we have a deep desire to feel like we belong and we are known and we are understood. And it's really, really difficult for us when people go through the same experience as us on the outside factually, but experience it different phenomenologically. So it means something differently to them. And it sometimes makes us feel like their experience or our experience is invalidated just because the meaning that we've ascribed to it is different or how we interpret it. But I think the the big thing I wanted to to hammer home here is the pre-traumatic factors. So what experience did you have growing up and how did those shape your brain and how old are you when this event happens? So there's that that could influence why people experience a certain event differently. Another thing is that let's just say those two kids who experience a divorce, one of them is eight and one of them is two. I mean, that's a large age span. But what might happen is that the eight-year-old might externalize their processing. So there might be acting out, um, hitting, punching, yelling and screaming. And the two-year-old might maybe might even remember some later, but it might affect them neurologically in such a way that it actually changes the course of the development of their brain but they don't actually have any memory of it because okay. of how old they are and what's happening in their brain sure. at that time. So there's there could be um, differences in in how the event impacts the person structurally and kind of existentially as well. Um, another piece that's important here is that gender affects how we, if we externalize or internalize our trauma. So women are more likely to internalize their trauma to a certain degree, kind of move into shame or depression or anxiety, whereas men statistically are more likely to externalize, to get aggressive, to be angry, to do something, to act out in some way. So it would be interesting to look at the ages in this hypothetical scenario. What are the ages of the kids What's going on for them developmentally at that time? Do they have memory of their parents being together? Were those happy memories? Were they? Um, was the time leading up to the divorce incredibly chaotic in the home? And did it create a sense of fragmentation in the self? Um, but then also, like, you might look at those two kids and think, oh, one person's doing way better at it, but they've become a people pleaser as a way of managing their trauma. So it's socially acceptable for them to cope in that way. Whereas the other person might turn to drugs and alcohol or might become violent as a way of them kind of processing their stuff or numbing their stuff. And it might look on the surface like they're not handling it as well, but the other person has just found a way to socially acceptably process or cope and it's also kind of more internal and toxic mentally wow <laughs> wow <laughs> this is like the exact same thing that happened the last time we had you on we just kind of oh, said no. stunned silence so as we tried to oh, prod no. no you don't need to apologize for no. anything believe me it's great i um, wanted to to say ahead. that there is sometimes when we've been through a trauma especially like i think we because divorce happens so often, we don't realize that it can be really, really disruptive for people, especially little people when they're developing. Mm-hmm. Not that it's necessarily a bad thing because, man, are, there are some people who should not be together and they're violent and it's toxic and the kids not having to deal with the fighting and the chaos is a good thing. But when chaos in the home, chaos relationally is home, him, like it's 
it's um, normative for a person. Their brain can become habituated to that state. And so they actually then look for experiences to mimic that experience because it's become normative for them. So there's some people who will seek out experiences. We could call them drugs or chronic masturbation or um, violent behavior or dangerous behavior because their brain is working to get back to what feels normal. Or things are so intense neurologically that they're looking for things that actually distract or numb out. Um, yeah, so there's there's lots of things to say about how early experiences, especially like divorce and all of the stuff leading up to the divorce, like the anger and the yeah. fighting um, can be really, really bad for little little people's brains growing up. So some of so switching a little bit of gear here, yeah, switching yeah. gears here a little bit. Some yeah. some of our most annoying Christian cliches, which we've covered on this podcast a little bit, <laughs> um, are sort of birthed from traumatic experiences. as sort of a kind of a coping mechanism, I think. Right. To yeah. Deal with the stress of the situation. So yeah. at what point do they move from being a coping mechanism to sort of an unhealthy form of spirituality? And is there mm -hmm. ever a time where minimizing trauma is helpful? I don't know if there's a dysfunction necessarily between coping and unhealthy spirituality. I think that there are times when something could be both. And I've certainly known um, people who have, or I've seen this, people who access spirituality as a way of bypassing, really processing experience. So it's kind of like an avoidant behavior. Sure. Um, I think that... Oh gosh, this is gonna this could get dangerous here. But I think that... Um, <laughs> I think that we like the idea of a God who rescues us from things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that seems to be like this vending machine God mm -hmm, yep. gives us what we want. And I don't know. I, I believe that God is capable of doing that. And I believe in um, the possibility that really amazing, miraculous things can happen. But I don't know necessarily if that's the way that God always works or this kind of like spiritual relational right. being that that we look to to provide comfort and sustenance and meaning for us. And I think that the cliches are people's inability to sit in suffering. So it's a way of kind of like trying to slap a Band-Aid on something. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that from a, like from a, I was saying intergenerational trauma perspective before where, you know, dad's trauma gets triggered because of son's trauma. If you think about somebody who hasn't had a safe space to work through their own hurt and then somebody else's hurt kind of pushes on their own bruises, but they haven't dealt with that. They're not only trying to make the other person's pain go away, they're trying to make their own pain go away by saying some of the stuff that they say. Sure. So I think that we, we, we have a hard time with suffering. We have a hard time with pain. Um, we want to make things feel better because we don't know how to sit in it. And we, we, I think culturally we've forgotten the value of accessing and processing sadness and pain. Um, so yeah, I think that, that there is something beautiful though in hope and saying to people like, I, I have hope that this won't always be the way for you, this way for you. And I believe that things don't always have to be this way. And while you're here, I'm okay to just be here with you too. And I don't need to make it go away for you so that I'm comfortable. And I don't need to make it go away for you so that um, you think that that's the only way that I want to be with you is if you're better. I but I don't. Like, I feel like it's a very Western sort of thing, like the idea of sort of mm -hmm. avoiding pain, avoiding death, avoiding um, 
avoiding anything that makes us uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, yeah. yeah. Avoiding, you know, it, it seems like you know you t- the you know the Jewish idea of sitting shiva. You know, you sit with right. him. You know, Job, yeah. his friends come and sit shiva with him. That's the best yeah. thing they did for him, and then they started talking and ruined it. Um, you <laughs> yeah, know, that's right. That idea, you know, that's a very Eastern. I mean, Judaism is mm-hmm. a very Eastern religion, and mm. we've Westernized Christianity so much that we've forgotten how to do any of that. And yeah. a lot of the stuff I've read recently in d- various places has just talked about the idea of of just sitting in our suffering and sitting with others yeah. in their suffering. And we've talked about that on this podcast a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's never, you know, it's we had somebody who posted, I won't name their name and I won't name the situation, who posted in the pub last night about something very traumatic that's happened to them over the last mm-hmm. year or so. Um, and she, we posted, you know, this person posted this and, you know, people in the pub were like automatically, and you may have seen it, I don't know how often you get in there. Right. I'm sure you're yeah. extremely busy posted this thing and like everybody was like we have no answers but we're here yeah and, yes yes um I, I i'm hoping that <laughs> i'm hoping in our little corner of the world that we're starting to reclaim that a little bit is the idea right. of just i can't do anything for you i i, I yeah. there's no words there's nothing i can say except yeah i'm in pain with you um yeah but they're, they're, you know rob bell's always said that the some of those powerful words in the english language are me too um, right I, I i've been through yeah. that or i will be through i will go through that with you yeah that's like that fits well with um, Brene Brown's research. I think I mentioned her last yeah, time. Yeah, she yeah, researches yeah, yeah. like shame, vulnerability, and stuff. But there is a sympathy. Ooh, that sucks for you. Right. And empathy and compassion. Like I get it. And yeah. I think that there is something valuable as well to say to people like I don't get it, but I I'm here. Right. And I want to get it. I really want to get it. And I want to hear how this is for you. And it's probably going to be messy for us both, but. I love you enough that I want to be messy with you. Sure. So saying me too is great when somebody's in shame, like, oh man, you're not the only one that, you know, that whatever this, this thing happened to, that's embarrassing. But sometimes we won't get the trauma. We won't get what a person went through, but we can say, I would say to add to that, some of those powerful words and that we could say to someone, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I am so sorry. And what that doesn't necessarily mean This comes up in counseling all the time. People are like, but I didn't do anything wrong or the person didn't do anything wrong. I think when we say, I'm so sorry in response to someone's hurt, what we're saying is when you hurt, I hurt. Right. And even if I don't understand, I'm, my heart is grieved by the fact that you are hurting and I want you to know that you're not alone. And in me saying to you, I, I'm sorry, or I feel with you, I am undoing your aloneness. Because yeah, if there's wow. anything like more, there, if there's anything more difficult than going through a trauma, I believe it is going through a trauma alone or feeling alone. If there's any amount of pain in the world, I believe that we cut it in half when we say to someone, I am with you in this. And I think that my, a supervisor of mine says this all the time, that therapy, our job is about undoing aloneness. It is about undoing a person's ultimate fear of being isolated and disconnected and ultimately then unlovable and unworthy. So when we say to somebody, I am with you, that it hits all sorts of other spiritual and existential needs that the trauma might have fractured or might have violated for us. And I think that can be a beautiful gift we give back to somebody. So is that is that our... is. <laughs> I probably know the answer to this, but I'll, I'll put it to you. Is yeah. aloneness our greatest, is that our greatest fear as a human, as human beings? Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if depending on who you're talking to, um, I kind of take an existential analysis perspective on this. Um, 
four fundamental concerns and fears would be meaninglessness, um, a balance of kind of figuring out the balance between freedom and responsibility, um, death and ultimate aloneness. And those would be biggest fears that we have. Will my life be meaningless? Um, will I be alone? Am I restricted? Do I have no agency? Am I not free? And will I die? And how will a whole podcast on this? Yeah. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. We could probably do four podcasts on this. One for each. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that like one of the things that I would say underneath or underscores a lot of those things coming again, this is from like a relational perspective and that's how I do. I won't go into like all of my theories of counseling and theories of change and pathology and stuff. But I think that belongingness um, and effectance are two things that are really important for us for thriving as people, knowing that we are a part of something that and that we matter to other people, that we have an effect on other people. Um, and if we have those two things, I think it can really help us get through hard stuff. Will it take the hard stuff away? Not necessarily. Maybe sometimes. Maybe. Maybe even if our trauma was neglect, maybe to know we belong, that we matter to people could be profoundly transformative and therapeutic. Sure. But I think yeah. that um, that belongingness and knowing that you matter and that you're seen, that you are seen by somebody, all of you are seen, even the messy stuff, that that um, – that that cuts the aloneness and the suffering down. And so then while our trauma might still be there, at least we're not isolated. <laughs> what were those? Can you name those four things again? I want to make sure I get those down. Aloneness, yeah. meaningless, meaninglessness. So four fundamental concerns said another way would be meaning, ultimate aloneness, death and freedom versus responsibility. Okay. So that tension between like, I, I am responsible for the mess that I've made, but I also have the freedom to make the mess. Got it. All right. That's what we know the podcast in the future. So, all right. So, make sure I get those down. Those Uh, are like, if you're interested in that stuff, check out EA, Existential Analysis. Um, A lot of work by Alfred Langel, who is the protege of Viktor Frankl. I think you guys know Mm -hmm, Frankl's mm -hmm, work. mm -hmm. So, Langel, uh, Langel, um, he travels the world and talks and writes about all this stuff, these four fundamental concerns. and I have been to his home and Victor Frankl's home. It's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Um, I've had a couple of friends who have had traumatic events yeah. happen in their childhood or teenage years. Um, sexual abuse, PTSD mm-hmm. from war. Um, mm-hmm. That the effects didn't really surface until later in life, like decades yeah. later. Yeah. Kind of just laying dormant. Yeah. Added, added with the normal effects of trauma, um, they also mourned how it affected their lives by not processing it earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of um, processing trauma and kind of the dangers of burying it in the subconscious? So I'm going to be... I'm going to be kind of um, picky with your word choice. Okay. There's a difference between <laughs> um, it laying dormant and not processing it. So I think that there are some times when people actually don't know that they've got trauma because it's, they've dissociated from it. So it's like kind of stored somewhere else. Okay. Um, and then there's a difference between that and people saying like, no, I don't want to go to therapy. That means that I'm weak. I can just tough through it. My dad went through it. I'll go through it. So choosing consciously to not go somewhere is different than not knowing that you have somewhere to go. Uh And I think that, um, 
people have to process trauma when they feel like they're ready to. And sometimes they can be moved into readiness by the trauma resurfacing um, and them realizing like, oh, shoot, wow, I totally flipped out at somebody and I didn't realize that that's my body reacting to such and such that happened a long time ago, which I didn't remember until last year or whatever. So there could be all sorts of reasons why a person might not know that they have to process something. Again, that's really normal with dissociation. Um, There's some clients that I'm seeing who I'll be fairly general and vague here, but have come to me because they have had certain kind of weird stuff show up. They're like, wow, I reacted in this really, really, really funny way. Um, and I don't like how I reacted. And then when we've gone through like life history and we've looked at their life, there are significant chunks, years that are completely missing, Yeah, completely missing. And then when we process a little bit of stuff, um, people are like, oh, wow, I, you know, some bad stuff happened. And I talked to my mom about it and she told me those were the years when such and such happened and whatever. So people might not know that they need to process something. So um, as somebody sitting outside of that trauma yeah. who didn't experience it and, and knowing that they haven't processed it, it's it would be a terrible idea for t- to, to push that uh, pro- that procession. I don't know what the word is. Yeah. To push yeah. for them to process through that because they may not be ready for it yet. So one of the things like that I like to say to people, and this is actually the most important ethical rule that we have when doing trauma processing, is you've got to go slow and it has to be safe. Because when you're going into really, 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 really messy stuff, the likelihood of it creating more problems, if you're not skilled and you're not supporting the person correctly, um, those, those odds are high, the risks are high. So if somebody is pushed into it and they won't, they don't want to, it's likely going to create more issues. And so I would start to look at why they don't want to. And have a conversation about that. So if someone is like, I don't want to because I think it's weak. Well, then maybe that's a good time to model going to therapy and be like, you know what, dude, I go to therapy all the time. And it has been huge for me in terms of like just dealing with normal everyday stuff. And so maybe that's a good play, good thing to do because you've been through a lot in your life. Instead of saying like you've, you must go process these events to just kind of normalize therapy and normalize reading about trauma and normalize accessing resources and seeing their doctor and keeping a journal and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but I think, I think it's not a bad idea if you know someone's been through something to just kind of like, if you've been through a lot and if you ever want to tell me or tell someone, I think that's really cool if you want to do that. Cause I don't think you have to be alone in what you've been through. So support openness versus trying to pry them open yourself. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And even as a, like as a therapist who has a clinical specialty in trauma, I don't pry people open. Hmm. So it's not something um, it's not something that is going to be productive unless a person has a certain degree of readiness and is hmm. trusting and feels safe with me. So often when I'm doing trauma therapy with people, whether they know they've got trauma and they know what it is or they're like, I think something messed up happened or they come in specifically working on that. Again, this would be more the case of people who have developmental trauma and just have a really hard time feeling safe with people or doing relationship. But the first handful of sessions, sometimes even first few months, are just safety building and working on 
affect regulation. So what are we going to do when really intense feelings come up? Okay, here, we're going to build in a massive toolbox of things you can do, because as soon as we start processing, the chances of you, you know, we're going to get into some stuff, it's going to feel pretty messy, we'll pack it up, I'm going to make sure you leave, and you're not wide open and raw, but the chances of something triggering you when you go home could be anything, like they're pretty high. So I want you, it's ethical for me to give you the skills to regulate yourself, to bring the intensity down, to ground yourself, to bring yourself back to kind of the present moment in your body in this moment. I got to give you those skills before we even go in. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So it kind of leads into this next question. What, what if yeah. trauma from the past holds too much presence in a current relationship? Yeah, it probably needs to get dealt with. <laughs> but I think um, so what I mean what if a current partner isn't compassionate or won't validate yeah. a past trauma yeah um, then I think that they need to get some psychoeducation and do some reading if a partner has is aware that their partner has trauma then the best thing you could do to support your partner is to get therapy yourself and to model mm. that and then to also get educated like take classes, read books. There's tons of books out there for people who aren't clinicians, who aren't interested in neuroscience about how trauma affects people. And the more you understand that, the more compassion you'll have and the safer it will be for your partner to start doing their own work. And it's modeling that behavior of openness exactly. that, that, yeah. um, that you're willing to have a conversation about. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I, th I don't think it's fair to ask people to do stuff that we're not willing to do. And maybe we don't have the trauma, but if you're saying like, you know, you have to go fix those things and you're not also taking responsibility for your part in the relationship and how you are making it difficult for that person to access help or feel safe enough to talk about what's going on for them. That being said, I think that if you know you've been through trauma and it's coming out as it often does for men, I'm trying to find a quote specifically. Oh yeah. Trauma exposure results in the failure, can result in the failure to modulate aggression, impulsivity, and anger. So especially when um, trauma occurs early on in the developing brain, it can re result in these kind of like what seems to be random anger or aggressive outbursts. So if, if that's going on for you and you've got trauma that you haven't dealt with, like you don't have, it generally doesn't feel good for you to go through those angry outbursts and to feel the shame and the regret and the fear and to see that in your partner if that's going on. And so you don't actually have to deal with the trauma anymore on your own or feel isolated or like it keeps sneaking up on you and you don't like it. And you can deal with it. And that can be a big part of changing patterns and conflict and uh, pain in your relationship. So I think both partners, there's a lot of people that I see um, individually and as couples um, where one person's been through trauma and the other person is like, okay, I need to know how to manage my reactions because my partner keeps losing it on me and I know that that's about a trauma trigger. What do I hold that person accountable for and what do I have grace for and how do I move through this? And so then working through that yourself is great modeling for the partner to say, deal with it. It's good. You're not alone. Hmm. Very good. Yeah. Awesome. Should we cap it there for the trauma questions? Yes. Let's cool. uh, let's go into the um, – so last time we covered sex, I want to yeah. – I got a few questions I want to – Can we to, do – Go ahead. Can we do two? Is that okay? Yeah, that's two fine. Questions? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so um, one of our listeners has a question yeah. that, uh, that, that kind of ties um, sex and trauma together. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, she says, as a woman who has been emotionally, verbally, and physically abused by many men, I feel I can never trust men fully. How can I bring myself to have compassion for the male sexual experience and honor men's sexuality when the typical, typical oversexual uh, hetero male man makes me so angry and disgusted? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that to that person, their response is actually totally totally normal of someone who has a lot of, had a lot of trauma. That's actually an adaptive response. If there's a group of people who time and time again have hurt you, you feeling unsafe and frustrated and angry and um, kind of maybe even at times avoidant of them is actually probably in some degree your brain's way of keeping you safe because our brain makes really fast and deep generalizations uh, between things that are sort of related when the things that have hurt us are really, really, really bad. So it's normal to feel um, really untrusting and really unsafe. I think the more the trauma has been dealt with, the easier it is to learn to trust your gut and to trust your body and to learn who's safe and who's not safe. Because a lot, one thing that happens for a lot of people who've been through repeat incidents of trauma that have been relational is that there is certain parts of them that get tuned up and or turned up and certain parts of them we could call like your gut certain parts get turned down and turned off and so sometimes people find themselves repeatedly in situations with people who are unsafe because when they were traumatized parts of their brain that went uh, that are used for radar and that filtering they go offline so people can sometimes find themselves in situations, they're like, this again, I'm with another abusive person, what's going on? And so when we do trauma work, um, it can be really helpful for turning back on the parts of yourself that you need to listen to, to make good choices about what's safe and not, and turn down the parts that tend to make us overreact to things that aren't actually threats anymore. So there can be kind of like a normalizing of our threat detection and our safety response mechanisms. But I think that it's really important then to be doing trauma work. And I don't think you have to at this point um, be in a sexual relationship with a man. I don't think you have to want that even right now. Um, If your anger and your disgust are protecting you from getting hurt again right now because you've been through a ton of hurt, then, then you deserve all of the time and the healing in the world that you need to be able to move through that. What I will say on the back end of this is something that a professor of mine taught me really, really early on in my, in my master's. Um, he said, hurt people, hurt people. And generally, um, I don't necessarily think that men are bad just because they were born with a penis. I don't think that there's (laughs) something about having an X and a Y chromosome that makes you evil. And I'm different than some of my, um, my radical feminist counterparts who would say that, that men are bad because they're men. (laughs) I think that a lot of men um, have been socialized into dismissing their feelings and acting out aggressively towards people as a way of feeling powerful and like they have um, value in our society. And so you might be able to find safety with men who have found um, alliance with non- heteronormative masculinity or non kind of hegemonic masculinity that's based in patriarchal ideas of masculinity where men can access um, parts of them, lots of emotions and depth and feeling and aren't aggressive and aren't 
domineering and aren't violent. And if, if you're attracted to men, then I'm, I'm certain that there are men like that out there if you feel safe enough to enter into a relationship with one of them. But I think that um, the way that I see it and the way that I have compassion for people who have been violent to their partners or aggressive or abusive is that there is likely a profound amount of trauma and hurt for them underneath that and that not everybody carries the same hurt. <laughs> so I guess one final question along yeah. this, along, as far as sex goes. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this also comes from a listener. <clears throat> what yeah. are ways we can move past guilt and shame we picked up from the church or family, mm-hmm. especially in regards to masturbation, sex, and bi and homosexuality? Yeah, I think um, I think shame is an interesting thing. It makes us want to hide. It makes us want to avoid and distance ourselves from people in general because we're afraid that when they see us as we are, that they're going to say to us that you're you're no good, you're unlovable, you're broken, you're you're not enough. And when we find groups of people who can undo our shame, um, it gives us courage to be ourselves. So I think finding communities where of like-minded people who can help us create a new narrative is really, really important. And having people in our life who are safe, who we can speak to about the truth of what's going on for us and who don't respond in shaming ways can be amazing for changing um, our felt sense of what it means to be us. And like I've talked about the brain's plasticity quite a bit today. Um, There is evidence that right up until you die, that your brain can change, that your brain can grow and adapt and learn and not just learning um, consciously like if you were to memorize a series of facts, but learn as in kind of take in and store information and then respond accordingly based on that information. And if the story for a really, really, really long time was that you're bad um, or that this is bad or something like that, then it's actually possible to change that story by creating and practicing a new story and having people support the development um, and the rehearsal of that new story. Huh. I like that answer. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Change your story. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, Very and help good. people because we're social beings and our brain is wired to be um, to thrive socially. And so you didn't develop that shame in isolation. You were just sitting there right, with right. on a desert island with no one and no church history and no um, people screaming maniacally at you that something is bad that happened in a context. And so if you can find a new context, it's not necessarily going to happen overnight, but um, your brain can adapt and socially, um, yeah, you can find some safety again. Hmm. The brain is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And kind of terrifying at the same time. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) So uh, appreciate you answering all those questions. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, One, a couple final things. Uh, Any update on your upcoming book? Yes. So (laughs) I've got, um, it'll probably be on Amazon in the next few months, which is cool. And I'm going to be starting to do bookings for speaking. Um, The book is going to be coming out in October 2017. And before that and after that, I am clearing my schedule. So I'm happy to be speaking and doing radio and online stuff and travel around. And my, my vision would be to do some maybe even some workshops or retreats um, to come speak at some events with people. I got some stuff booked up here in Canada, but I, I like you folks down in the States. So if anybody's interested in, in I would recommend I would recommend waiting four years. <laughs> uh, 
you yeah, could, if you could wait that, that long. <laughs> I said something like that to somebody, and they were like, "You know what? I think I think they need it more now than ever." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. very very true. Yeah, to talk about psychology and development and how we can love each other. And my book specifically is about um, women moving away from shame in their bodies, coming into actually taking up space in this world from a body image and embodiment and, you know, prevention of eating disorders perspective and looking at relationships between mothers and daughters and women to women and within ourselves. But I do, especially with a ladies man um, and a bunch of other stuff, love to talk about masculinity and faith. And one of the interesting findings from my research, which I talk about in the book, is how people in my study had deep and profound relationships with their creator. And mm-hmm. I was not expecting that to be a factor in body love. I did not expect that at all. Cool. So happy to talk to people of faith as well. Um, yeah, so that's, that's awesome. that stuff's coming up. Very and, cool. Yeah, thanks so much for asking. Yeah, we yeah. would definitely love to have you back on whenever you're ready to start talking we about would. that. Are book. we going to wait till October to have her back on? I, I don't, don't really. Know. I'm not. I'm kind of not on board with <laughs> well, that. We I'd definitely like to, need to might, talk to you take in October. Six or seven months to process this interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, do you have time for a, a lightning round? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, last time you mentioned being allergic to meat and potatoes. What is your favorite comfort food? What is my favorite? Um, right now I'm super into pomelo. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I've never had one. It's like a giant it grapefruity is, type thing, it is right? so good. My husband calls it alien brains inside. He thinks it looks like the inside <laughs> of a stomach lining from a biology textbook. I love it so much. Re- you're really selling that. <laughs> I know. Oh God! It's not as sour as grapefruit. You can eat it with your fingers. Huh. It's very tactile. I have good. to try one of those. Do it up. Yep. Thanks. What is your hey, what's hey, your hey. what's your beverage of choice? Um, I like a good Caesar. That's I don't think you guys have Caesars in the states. Well, I don't even know what, what that is. is. That? Oh no! Oh, this has got to happen. I need to like send <laughs> airmail. You. This is a drink. Stomach. This is a drink. It's a Canadian. I guess it's a Canadian drink. Um, some. It, it's kind of like a Bloody Mary, sort of. But it's um, made from moose blood. Not. <laughs> <laughs> um, or like beaver placenta. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I told you I try and see placenta in every and episode I do. So like like beaver back. placenta and maple syrup. It's delicious. That's right. No, it's like spicy um, Worcestershire sauce. Um, Tabasco, oh nice, tomato juice, spicy beans, spicy celery, salt rim. So it is very similar to like a Bloody Mary. Yeah, but better. I okay. think they use cl- clamato is the mix. Oh the right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get clamato here. You know what that is? Yeah, I've never heard of that. It's clam juice and tomato juice mix. Oh, okay. yeah. Clamato. Huh? Yeah. yeah, nice. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. <laughs> Okay, uh, what was the last album you listened to from start to finish? Um, what was the last album? I think it was Alt-J. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, their most recent one. That just, let me just pull it up. An awesome, an awesome to? wave. Maybe. I can't remember I can't remember oh. which one comes before the other one. This is all yours, actually. Oh, okay, yours. that was their first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First, okay, yeah, just the other day. So good. I was weeping softly. Yeah, it's good it's stuff. Softly. Yeah. Uh, what's the best film you've seen in the last 12 months? In the last 12 months? Mm-hmm. Um, what's that one with the guy who raises his kids? It's an indie film. He raises the kids in the forest, and then 
they have to go into town. <laughs> Captain <don't>... Fantastic. <laughs> and then he gets attacked by a bear. Are you talking about the Revenant? No. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Fantastic and also the Hunt for the Wilder People. Two uh-huh. out of this world, really interesting films. That's awesome. Quirky, funny. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, last uh, last lightning round question. If you could erase yeah. one word from existence, what would that word be? Um, catecholamine. I was really having a hard time getting that one out the other day. <laughs> Did not see that coming. Voice <laughs> is a top second. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're on board with that. Yeah, yeah. get that out of here. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much for, for yes, coming thank on. You. Where can people find you online? Ah, my website's up and running now. Um, HillaryLMcBride.com. That's Hillary, Hillary with, with two L's. You got it. Yeah, two L's in my first name and then my middle name. And so my speaking stuff is up there and writing and links to media articles and a little bit about how I work and stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, thank ah, you. My pleasure. <laughs> we'll definitely have your... to have you on again. Good, I can't wait. Now that we puked in your sea, you can tell us what you think. The five stars get red, but one star is dead to us. Uh, that was a mind-melting interview. Yeah, you're no to, kidding. You're going to have to read that one or go listen to that one a few times. Um, yeah. Go yeah. ahead and mash the save button on uh, iTunes yeah. on that one. Um, Five-star reviews. Matt, what do you got? Several. Um, I think we've iTunes must be having issues. Is there a week you're not going to chew into the microphone? <laughs> God. Um, so we had... <laughs> You got some of your beard, they're dipshit. Yeah, I know. Um, we had one from Rickus Babas last week, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It changed. To what? The, the, the review changed. It's, oh. It's just called Yup, and it says, so I joined the pub, and I have a question since last week Peter Rollins was on. When is his brother Henry going to be on? <laughs> Which is pretty good. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, I, it... Something's going on with iTunes because people are having trouble posting. And well, it'd be really shocking for a, know. a for an Apple software to be shit. Seriously, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so we had three others. Uh, this one's called "These Guys Are Dumb." Thanks by by freaking review. Uh, These guys are dumb, and then the review is except for Michael. Michael's a genius. <laughs> Fuck you guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Written by MJ. Basically, no, yeah, it wasn't right. me. Um, I bet that's Rustin. Uh, might be. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. This one uh, is called Binging by Psycho Steve 214. <laughs> Psycho spelled S Y K O. Hi, Psycho Steve. Um, I've listened to 40 episodes in Hope the last month. Catching Good up. grief. It's a lot. Oh, my God. Just listen. Pastor, that should be like a medical disorder. I'm yes. not sure I could handle that. We need to call Hillary back on that and see if that's an actual you issue. You might want to get that checked out, buddy. Yeah. Just listen to the Twisted Sisters first episode, and I had to make sure I wrote a review saying how much I loved it. Uh, the guys are okay too, I guess. Well, you listen to forty goddamn episodes, so apparently you think <laughs> we're okay. Apparently, all right. And Stay then, on target. Uh, this one, an okay influence uh, by Millennialology's better host. Oh, I know this guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, before I rec- before I was recommended this podcast, I was losing a lot of faith in the American Christianity, and that being the only type of Christianity I knew, I didn't know what to do. 
This podcast has helped me gain a new understanding of Christianity that's not twisted in the way that American Christianity is while providing me a great laugh. If the uh, if you guys couldn't tell from the title, this is Zach, obviously because Nick is too lazy to write a review and not near looking. <laughs> iTunes are not only impossible for me to write. Hashtag Stevie. <laughs> so what's really weird is I had another review. Really? I had, I checked it earlier and there was a different review on there. For what? Uh, from Brandy. Oh, yeah, there's one here too. Oh, oh sorry. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. There is one. I didn't scroll up high enough. <laughs> um, the Pub is My Church by Branster83. I love these guys because they are honest, hilarious, and passionate about the truth that is found in... What are you doing? My I God. I have no idea. Seriously. All right, keep going. <sighs> I love these guys because they are honest, hilarious, and passionate about the truth that is found in the nuances of humanity and spirituality. A few years ago, I burned out for my five years volunteering in a mega church and went through deconstruction. I was listening to podcasts like Bad Christian, Ask Mike, and The Liturgist. Then I found myself related to deconstruction as well. I eventually evangelical church to figure out my identity outside the church. I began listening to the podcast weekly, and I realized this podcast became church and resonated with me and gave me hope. And church isn't church without dick jokes. <laughs> I also found community and friends uh, from all over the country through the pub. I love these awesome people. I never thought a podcast would change my life, but it has. Wow. Shit. Yeah. Jeez. That's uh Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Brandy. Very much. Yeah, I almost cried whenever I read that. Yeah. Almost. But I don't have a heart. Um she does have a podcast named uh Drinking at Bible Study. Mm-hmm. Her and uh, a gentleman who just recently just joined, joined the pub, the pub as well. Too. Yeah. Joe. Yep. So check that out too. Um okay, Twitter. Um Gern at uh who's Ryan Gerd Gerdnand. At Gurney Gurn on Twitter. Gurnand? Gurn and. Gurnand. Gurnand. He added four syllables to that. Gurnand. Gurnand. God. Gurney Gurn at Gurney Gurn said, Ben List. That's that's what his Twitter is. Don't shake your head like I'm making fun of his name. Um, Been listening through at Pastor's Podcast past few weeks. Never expected to find such meaningful community in a podcast, but here it is. Very cool. And his friend, Nick Peace, um, at Nick underscore Peace, uh, wrote, your tweet is timely. Tagged him in it. I literally just started listening to them this week. So two guys listening who were on on their own separate paths joined by the podcast. So Cool. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are just like sitting there. Yeah. Uh, Caleb Rudder at Caleb underscore Rudder wrote, I have recently discovered the at Pastors podcast and I couldn't be any happier with this discovery. And I sent them a gif and said, I'm glad we've been discovered. And then someone else, Cindy Weiner, W-I-N-E-R, um, wrote, be careful. I hear it hurts when they plant the flag. Um, I claim thee in the name of Arkansas. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Michael Yoder, uh, at Michael Yoder 81 said, <laughs> hates me. <laughs> he said in between building barns is the shout. I shout out. I got, I think that's an Amish joke. Duly noted dudes, duly noted. And I just wrote that's at Polly. I honestly don't even remember that. Comment. You did. Did I? Yeah, yeah you did. Yeah. It was a throwaway. It was low hanging fruit. <laughs> and then he said, uh, God knows that's all we care about here on this podcast really is, is low hanging. He fruit. said buying dinner for you guys when you come up here for, for everyone, but at Polly named Brad, <laughs> <laughs> writing this in my diary so I remember. So, uh, Jettison Inc. wrote, Durex, the only condom endorsed by the Pope. 
I like that. Uh, Sandra and Turnbull, which I think I've been saying Turnbull all you along. Have, yeah, you have. Turnbull. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful world. Uh, laughing like a lunatic and crying in the same episode. Love it. Thank you. Crying because you butcher her name every week. She's never even mentioned it. I just I just caught it myself. <laughs> it's implied. I'm going to say Turnbull next time. I know I will. Yeah, you will. Damn it. Uh, Do we have a comment from, from uh, Shane Ware yet? <laughs> Sean. Sean. Yeah. Go we ahead. Say it right. At Batman villain, Ian Irving <laughs> said, quote, I either did or I definitely thought about it. <laughs> At MJ Basinger's Tell Nothing autobiography will be in all bad gas stations soon. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I said that about Pixie Sticks. I either did or I didn't. I can't really remember. Yeah. And I was going to pick up Pixie Sticks on the way here so I could snort them, but I totally forgot. No, I, go ahead and do that. Yeah, well, I'm not doing, doing that. that so. Yeah, come on, guys. Nope, not going to happen. You- come on, come on. Um, at Amanda wrote, loving the discussion about uh, Tamar. Uh, she is my favorite woman in the Bible. Hashtag sexy, sexy Bible. <laughs> and Courtney Vrablick at Salvage Pie said it was worth such it. a great name, man. That is such a great handle. She said it was worth it, even if I, even if now I know more than one or two about hashtag sexy Bible. In parentheses, it says it's a very blick. So. I swear, I think he's had about 18 concussions in his life. Like, <laughs> you can just feel the brain stop working for a minute. Um, Huff the Magic Dragon. Michael has CTE. Huff the Magic Dragon. God. Uh, also My, said. Michael is Jim McMahon. <laughs> said, uh, feeling hashtag blessed by uh, being serenaded by the Pastards podcast, BTW. No cow has water too. This is the view from her desk. Hashtag sexy. Oh sexy yeah, it's all pictures. And then Tony Bedora said, um, "Fantastic interview. I will be buying the book." Hashtag sexy sexy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a good book. We recommend it. Yep. And then Rustin Klafka finally said, "Ran my first marathon, and these podcasts got me through it." At Pastor's Podcast at Real Rob Bell at Justin S U A at Mike McArg. Uh, love you people. Hashtag suffer better. So nice. Congratulations on running a marathon too. Yeah. yeah. I don't get it. Mm-mm. Closing time. <laughs> rate us on iTunes. But more power to you. Yeah. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, it's hashtag time. Yeah. Uh, write us a review on iTunes. Check out uh, our website in gloriouspastards.com. <laughs> uh, support us on Patreon. <laughs> Patreon.com slash pastors podcast. Um, yeah, really support us because we need your, your support and it's fun in the pub. Yep. Yes, it is. Um, hashtag time. All right. I've got a few. I only have two. Uh, hashtag episode four, six. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. Hashtag beaver placenta and maple syrup. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a really strong one. Hashtag maths are hard. <laughs> maths are hard. Hashtag Matt stars in old grumpy bastard. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag not too in your face not too in your face hashtag michael's horse genitals <laughs> the struggle's real guys support us on patreon patreon.com slash pastors podcast i need i need to get this thing sorted out <laughs> <laughs> hashtag hashtag equine sex organ <laughs>
<laughs> what is it? You can put the word equine in front of anything, and it's hilarious. <laughs> equine oh sex gosh. organ. Wait, 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 wait. What, um, what was Michael's? Michael's what? Michael's uh, horse. Michael's chips. horse. Chips. <laughs> um, while we're talking about um, the oh, struggle. Again, that's patreon.com slash pastors podcast. Please help this Where way. you can help me with my equine sex origin. Origin. Thanks. That song was great. Thanks, guys. Uh, that was a great song, by the way. Yeah, then, uh, Sam McLaughlin. Hashtag unknown ruminant meat. <laughs> Which might be my favorite, in case you're wondering. Might be my vote. Unknown ruminant meat. <laughs> I really I guess, like that. It gets funnier the longer I think It about really it. does. And then hashtag Michael has CTE. Uh, I've got, I just had hashtag beaver placenta. Uh, hashtag maths are hard. Uh, hashtag take the company out of Michael, please. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be exercised yeah. in my demons. Hashtag Michael is finally mad on the internet. Ah, that's true. Hashtag uh, yoga pants can oh, be fired up too. Hashtag it's where I strap mine. What? The that's where Michael said that. Oh, down my leg. Yeah, down his leg. Hashtag elephant toupee. Hashtag monopoly fleshlight. Uh, <laughs> hashtag. <laughs> 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 Just picturing it, a little, a little <laughs> pewter, a little pewter flashlight piece, a pewter Peter. <laughs> hashtag Peter Peter. Oh uh, man. <clears throat> hashtag eighteen concussions, and then hashtag Michael is Jim McMahon. <laughs> I've got uh, hashtag breakfast eyes. <laughs> Plural for breakfast is. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Um, hashtag uh, Trump painted gray, um, and uh, the hashtag uh, badger. I don't even remember. Badger placenta. was it beaver? Beaver, beaver placenta. Badger. I, I can't remember it. Anyway, and there's the CTE kicking in again. I swear to God, he's had 14 motorcycle accidents in his life. Jeez. Uh, he can't even like get in his door. He's like, no. he keeps running to the door yeah. frame. Guys, mental illness is not a joke. <laughs> I'm gonna come. Uh, I'm kind of on board with unknown room. And meat. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like. I that. like the beaver placenta. That is really good too. This is our only opportunity to use unknown ruminant meat. Well, it's probably our only opportunity to use beaver placenta and maple syrup too. <laughs> yeah, I do like the beaver. The beaver placenta. All right, let's do. <laughs> let's do beaver That's placenta fine. and maple syrup. All right, so if you listen to this episode in its entirety, hit us up on social media. All seven hours of it. With uh, beaver, hashtag beaver placenta and maple syrup. <laughs> Make sure you tag uh, at Hillary L. McBride. <laughs> Hillary with two L's. She'll appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure she will. Um, yeah, so it'll be it'll be a giggly good time. You can hit us up on social media, uh, on Twitter, at Pastards Podcast. At Polly named Brad. At Polly named Matt. And at MJ Basinger. Um also, Facebook.com slash Bastards Podcast, we can be found there. Um, and uh, that's about it. Let's close it out with a little bit of Tom Doherty. Um, this is his song, um, It's Complicated. So here we go. <laughs> Oh, 
Oh, I screwed that up. <laughs> oh, my Let's try that again. 